Hello and welcome to Fats on Film. I am your host Hannah Ogilvie and this is a podcast where we discuss all things fat representation in film, TV and wider media. And this week I am joined by my guest, Dr. Vincent M. Gain. Hello, Vincent! Don't ask me to weep for these podcast <laughs> listeners. I won't weep for them any more than I would those who died at Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, you are the first guest to come in with a deep pull from the film, really setting the tone. <laughs> well, I, I I do my best. Yeah. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Hello, listeners of Fats on Film. Uh, very happy to be here. I have been become, in very fairly short time, a very big fan of this podcast and i am honored to be contributing oh thank you so much vincent that means the world to me like i'm sure as like someone who's just in 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 this community can appreciate when you put something out there and it is received greatly it really is a very um joyous and humbling experience because for so long i've had these thoughts in my head going does anyone else agree with me or hear me or care (laughs) and luckily like listeners like yourself listeners who are listening right now have been so gracious in allowing me to take time out of their week to explain fat representation in our media so thank you so much that's that's so lovely we are here today because we're talking about a thriller crime thriller as wikipedia describes it seven 1995 seven so it's, a, it's an interesting one because I think when we were first speaking about you coming on the podcast, Vincent, we said, you asked, oh, would that, how would we talk about that? Because the fatness or the fat phobia in the film isn't a central theme. So how much of this podcast can we talk about? But you were still quite strong on talking about it still. So are, are those feelings after you've watched it again this week, or do you still feel this is going to be a good topic to get into? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Firstly, in terms of the of Seven's representation of fatness, I think mm-hmm. it is very illustrative of a great many uh, uh, social and um, uh, political ideas that we can get into. And more broadly, you know, it's a very rich film that we can have a really in-depth discussion on as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting film. This is, you know, highly considered one of the best films ever made. So we're going in big. We're go- we're tackling one of the big ones. It was released in 1995, crime thriller directed by David Fincher of Fight Club, Gone Girl more recently, and a film that fucked me up, Panic Room. That film made me so terrified of being burgled. I had to check multiple times that the door was locked before I went to bed. Really, really messed me up. Love that film so, so much. I think that's one of his like underrated ones, personally. Written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who hasn't actually done too much, but did do Sleepy Hollow in 99 and the screenplay for 2010's The Wolfman uh, remake. And then cinematography by Darius Konji, I think is how you say his name. His name, sorry. And he also did Delicatessen, which is, for me, like, I totally saw those parallels. Have you seen Delicatessen? Not all of it. I've seen clips. Yeah. And even from those clips, I know what you mean. Yes. Like, a real griminess to 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 how it's been filmed. As soon as I read that, I was like, oh, well, of course, you know. So the cast includes... Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Kevin Spacey. I'm going to say at the very top, listeners, I know these people are not the best people that we have. Um, So we're not going to talk about their individual personal drama. 
um I do not mean to undermine anything that they're you know that they've done to other people but just for the sake of this podcast we're going to talk about them as actors and characters in this film and it had a budget of 34 million dollars which is not a lot um, and that probably stems from David Fincher's previous attempts at filmmaking, which we can get into. Um, but it did make $327.3 million in 1995. And they really didn't think it was going to make that much money. It was middling test audiences. The studio was really not keen on the bleak ending again, which we'll get into. But it became the highest grossing film of 1995. So massive, massive success. Um, it received one Oscar nomination for Best Editing and was nominated at the BAFTAs for Best Screenplay, Original Screenplay, I should say. But but at the MTV Movie Awards, it got three nominations, <laughs> one for Best Movie, one for Most Desirable Male in Brad Pitt, which I'm just, I just don't understand that at all. In this film, like, I don't get it. And then Best Villain for Kevin Spacey's John Doe. And then because they were so keen to get some Oscar buzz for this, they re-released it in December following the original September release. But it, obviously no nominations came for Fincher or, more, uh, or Morgan Freeman or Brad Pitt. And it currently sits at number 19 in IMDb's top 250 films of all time. So like I say, it's one of the big ones. So Vincent, can I pass to you now and let me and the audience know what is Seven all about? Ah, uh, Seven is about so many things, many of them beginning with S. But let us, if you want to talk about it thematically, it is a film about sin. It is about uh, wanton violence. It is about the breakdown of morality in America. Mm -hmm. It is about deep systemic uh, soul corruption. Mm -hmm. Narratively, it concerns two police detectives, uh, the ageing and soon-to-be-retired William Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman, and the recent uh, young detective, just transferred into the department, um, David Mills, played by Brad Pitt. These two detectives start investigate a series of very grisly and uh, very strange murders and rapidly realise that the murders are based upon the seven deadly sins the film takes place over the course of a week monday to sunday so we have seven days we have seven victims we have seven sins it is a in that respect a very tightly constructed film although not always as tightly as you might imagine is it one victim per day well <laughs> not exactly no um and along the way our detectives find themselves confronting many of their most deeply held beliefs and come to look at the world maybe a little differently mm -hmm. and certainly have experiences that they will never forget. I mean, mm -hmm. we do full spoilers here, don't we? Oh, 100%. Full spoilers, they're swearing. I mean, yeah, we have to. We have okay. to with this film. Yes. Well, in, the, in which case, uh, shortly uh, <laughs> on, the, on the seventh day, the killer gives himself up mm -hmm. and uh, in, 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 embroils the two detectives. Um, he turns out to be a fairly, a literally anonymous man called John Doe. Mm -hmm. And uh, he embroils them in the final schemes and uh, it doesn't end well for anybody. Mm. Yes. I mean, the ending of Seven is always quoted as one of the best twists or best finales 
um, ever committed to to film um, and rewatching it just this afternoon with with this lens on with this analytical lens on I was really struck by how poignant the ending really is I actually would if I'd had the time and if I had the force I'd have loved to have gone back to read what reviewers thought of it when it first came out because you know in hindsight it's almost 30 years old. Oh my God, it's almost 30 years old. Yep. <laughs> just so, oh, hello. Um, yeah, like I'd love to know, like, obviously we look on it so kindly now, but I wonder if at the time, like I did briefly look at how it has a 65 meta score, which just feels so low for a film of, of such cinematic magnitude, right? Well, then again, it, uh, based, it's got 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, based well, there on you go. 85 reviews, which indicates... Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. Rotten Tomatoes is a very problematic um, <laughs> meter, but uh, metric, but it does indicate that um, there is a that is a majority of positive reviews. Yeah, totally. Um, I I mean, I remember when the film came out. Um, although it's officially a ninety five release, it mm. came out in the first week of nineteen ninety six in the UK, mm. and I remember it getting being very well received at that time. The the top level film critic in the UK was Barry Norman, and he rated Seven one of his top films of the year. Wow! Um, so yeah, I think uh, it was. It's generally quite critically well received, and it's easy to see why. Yeah. Um, it is a film that is extremely well constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a very. Um, it, it's in some ways, despite being a serial killer thriller, um, it is in some ways, visually stylized like um, an art film. Um, mm. You mentioned the cinematography by Darius Konji. There are, so there were some particular techniques used in the cinematography um, that were unusual and distinctive. Um, it's almost surprising it was nominated for um, editing, but not for cinematography. But there you yes. Go. Um, mm-hmm. So it is, I think, critically quite well held up. And when one comes across like best um you know, a list of best films of the 90s, mm-hmm. uh, particularly best thrillers, then Seven is generally in there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So so what's your history with this film? What's your relationship with Seven? My relationship with Seven uh, is, well, it has had an, is, is quite an interesting one because, as I said, this came out in uh, January of 1996 in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've discovered taking part in podcasts is that, I seem to be a bit older than most people <laughs> doing these. Seven was the first 18 certificate film that I saw in the Ooh. cinema. Ooh. But at the time, I was only 16. Ooh, oh, alert, alert the authorities. Yes. <laughs> to, yes, to, yes, alert the authorities to prosecute the staff of a cinema that's now closed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because it was a long time ago. Um, uh, so yeah, I saw it when I was um, sixteen. Um, I saw it with my with my parents, um, both of whom hated it. I was going I'm, to ask. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure neither of them ever watched it again. Oh. Um, and you know, not because they found it boring or silly, mm-hmm. but they found it was just too nasty. Yes, too horrible. Anytime mm-hmm. it would come up in conversation, my dad's word would be, "Oh, it's horrible, <laughs> so horrible." <laughs> which, to which I thought, well, fair enough if that's your take on it, but. You know, mm-hmm. thesaurus maybe. <laughs> um, now I was my that first viewing for me. I remember it left me somewhat in shock. Mm. Um, I distinctly remember 
leaning forwards and resting on the at the end at the very end of the film on the seat in front of me and just going <laughs> um so yeah i was not sure what i had seen but i knew yes. it was powerful yes um, and the fact that it was powerful i liked that and seven mm -hmm. ended up being one of my films of the year um I didn't watch it again for quite a while mm -hmm. um, until 2002. And I remember watching it then, watching it with my then girlfriend, and she found it seriously troubling. Mm. However, during that space in 2002, I actually watched it quite a lot um, because I did my master's dissertation on the work of David Fincher. Oh, perfect. Um, I did an in-depth discussion. At the time, Fincher had only made four films, yeah. Alien 3, 7, Fight Club, and panic room mm -hmm. and i did a reading of those four films anyway that they were all i did a very religious reading of them that they were all to do with the fall as in you know the fall from innocence um the end of the world and then a form of redemption that they mm. were all about the fall from innocence or from virtue and then a form of redemption mm -hmm. On reflection, it was a bit of a forced argument in some respects, and I wouldn't try doing it again because I don't <laughs> think there's any redemption in the social network. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't say there's really much of a fall in mm. the curious case of Benjamin Button. Sure, um, yeah. So, but at the time, you know, it felt like an interesting reading. Yeah. And David Fincher is a, I would consider him one of my favourite directors. He's mm -hmm. one whose work I, you know, I can always go back to and find a lot that's really interesting. I think he is a fantastic visual stylist. Yeah. Um, he's fascinating in terms of the way he has sort of um, he, he's one of those filmmakers who's very much embraced the movement to digital filmmaking. Yes, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I would say that uh, Seven is and I've gone back to it repeatedly, most mm -hmm. recently for this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and it always impresses me. It mm -hmm. always disturbs me. And you know, mm -hmm. even when I know what's coming, I'm still like, oh, God, no. Mm -hmm. So I would say I do admire it and even enjoy it as a very finely assembled piece of cinema. Yeah. How about you? What's your history with it? Yeah, my history. So when this film came out, if we take the UK release of 1996, I would have been, well, I'd be turning four that February. So I didn't see it as a four-year-old. Oh, However, you kids. <laughs> I know. Um, little scamps. Um, but what I did see when it came out was Saw. And oh my God, like that just like, went into my brain I was like I want to see more 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 like this and I remember the days of the IMDB message boards and you'd go down and someone had written you know what are films similar to Saw and someone had said it's heavily influenced by Seven and I was oh, like yes. who Good. and what is this and I remember that's when I first sought out Seven and like again watching this film now a bit older a bit wiser more analytical I mean it's it's so clear the links, um, even to the point of like the photography is is even like referenced within within Seven is referenced in Saw, and I just yeah, very much a very clear line between the two there. And I remember thinking, uh, again, like going back to how I feel about the ending, I the ending shook me, especially just I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow being the i don't know a, a darling of hollywood and to be dispatched so brutally felt what's in the box what's in the box oh my god i mean even that like brad pitt like whole whole crying the the whole the ensemble just works so perfectly but I, I, this idea that david fincher was brave enough or or brazen enough to to butcher this this 
darling in such a horrible way. I know we don't see it, but I mean, you know, your imagination is doing all the work there. I think it's really awesome. I think it's, and I appreciate that's like the nastiest. Um, again, another scene which we'll get into like properly is the lust victim. Um, <laughs> it is is like even watching it back today, I it really does send chills up my spine. And I want to point out, and I'm sure you probably have as well, Vincent. I've watched meaner, darker, grosser stuff than this now because we have become desensitized as an audience. We need to be a bit more shook. And as much as there is some grim stuff happening in Seven, you don't see a lot. You see the aftermath. And yet there's something so visceral about, again, the world that's been built, the apathy, which is dripping off the page. Like so the, some, of the way, some of the way the cops speak to each other is so just sad they just don't care and no one seems to care apart from uh, apart from our central two and they care in very different ways something about it just makes it so sad and just like what was it all for and i think that's where i come to with this if i compare that to saw you know jigsaw's whole mo is that you know he wants you to appreciate the life that you have um, and if you if you do the horrible thing, you need get to live your life. If you don't, then you'll die. Whereas with this, it's it's it is the same kind of morality tale. Like you should atone for your sins, but there's also no getting out of it either. Um, it is it's it is hopeless until it's not because then Somerset's like, I'll be around at the end. And that's that's the end of the film. I love this, that the 90s were so good at ending a film, just ending it. There's no like, you know, 10 minute ending where everyone wraps up and like has a dinner. It's like, no, we're done. Move on. <laughs> let's talk about, let's go through the plot and then we'll like start hitting things that we need to talk about. So the film opens with just sirens blaring. Mm-hmm, that's right. And we've got uh, Somerset, William Somerset, Detectives William Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman, he's getting ready for his day of work and he's been called to a new crime scene and you hear like the kind of cop say, oh, it's a crime of passion. Mm-hmm. And Somerset look at said... all the passion on that at, wall. Look at all the passion on that wall. And... In he, reference to a guy who's had his head blown off. Yes, exactly that. So it's this idea of like crime of passion. And, and again, that's a really interesting term or phrase, isn't it? Because it passion is meant to be seen as this lovely um thing that should be protected we should all want like passion you know someone felt passionately about you that that sounds very very nice and something we should be aspiring to but crime of passion means usually that there's been a domestic violence incident and one one partner has killed the other we uh, somerset asks did the kid see it and the other cop responds who cares who cares? And yeah. that, even that, Vincent, like really got to me because I was like, oh my God, there's just no hope. Hmm. A- and, you know, he's he says something like, oh, we can't wait for you to retire. Like something so nasty. And you again, within two lines of dialogue, we know who this person, he's such an outsider in the police force um, in the city, which they call Metro. He's 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 an outcast. He's seen as uh, someone who gets too involved. He looks too deeply where all the other cops clearly just see it as a day job. You know, go up, go to the scene, pick up your evidence, clean it up and move on to the next one because there will be a next one. And in that moment, we see that Somerset has empathy. It's interesting because I spoke earlier about apathy and empathy is a real big thing in this film. Absolutely. 
And when I was reading up on this in research, a lot of people were saying that like Somerset is apathetic to to where he is and they have that conversation in the bar later on about you know I can't exactly remember what it is I know you'll remember but they talk about I'm you want Somerset yeah yeah, Somerset says um I don't feel I can continue to live in a place that worships apathy as if it was some kind of virtue exactly that yes and and Mills says I'm not going to agree with you Indeed, yeah. I mean, Mills is very is adamant about that. He's like, mm-hmm. you want me to agree with you? You want me to say it's all fucked up? We should all go yeah. live in a log cabin, but I don't. I mm-hmm. do not agree with you. Mm-hmm. I do I not can't. agree with you. Yeah, and I but but relating that scene later on to this scene now, it's interesting that I think like Somerset does have empathy, but I wonder whether he has empathy because the par- the Paris the victim is a child. And we see child as innocence. Potentially, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's notable, I think. If you think about it, okay, mm-hmm. interesting point. <laughs> Children are referenced several times in the film. We mentioned this kid at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, Tracy, uh, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, yes. um, Mills' wife. She gets pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, she It's also mentioned that she has been a teacher yes she's looking to try and teach again but the schools in the city are t- too ghastly um somerset mentions that he was with he used to have a partner who was pregnant mm-hmm. and he actually here's a an unusual thing for a film from the mid 90s they may not say abortion mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's very but he makes it clear that he suggested to his partner that an abortion might be the best thing and she agreed mm-hmm. um so although children and of course yeah um Fred Tracy gets pregnant and then dies horribly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when Mills didn't even know about it so it's notable although they are mentioned I mm-hmm. don't think we ever see a single child in the film or if we do it's very we, brief it is very brief we do we hear them because okay. I had the subtitles on because I just want to make sure I I got things down verbatim and subtitles show a lot of children screaming in the background especially when they first investigate john doe's residence you can, there's children in the background like neighbors that's and, true and then the chase through where mills is pursuing john doe he runs through like several flats and there's some kids on the bed watching cartoons You're and absolutely they wait right. and that's but that's it that is yeah. it and again that's really interesting i i, I again i really want to get into that when we like run through but I find their reaction very odd. And I, because <laughs> I don't know, if like someone just ran into my house, I wouldn't just be like, oh, they went that way. I'd be like freaking out, you know? Well, um, that's the interesting thing because on the one hand, they're not freaking out, but at the mm-hmm. same time, they almost look kind of numbed. It's yes. a, you know, Mills yes. bursts in, Mills bursts in with his gun mm-hmm. and Doe has already run through yes. with his gun. With and his the gun. kids are like, uh, yeah, almost that this way. blank stare. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which I suppose is again the apathy. Everyone in this city in is this city. completely mm-hmm. not they're not they're not necessarily mm-hmm. stoned, mm-hmm. but they are kind mm. of zoned out. Quick point on something you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You said the city is metro. Yeah. I've always imagined that this I've always noticed the city as being nameless. It's not identified. Where is it's, it referred to as metro? 
so when um Arlie Emery's captain, yeah. um, so when Somerset says I want you to be reassigned, he goes, well, "We can't. You no, know, that doesn't happen in Metro." And I was like, "Oh, oh that, that's just a that's just a name." But then when John Joel gets out of the taxi at the end at the precinct, it says on the taxi, "Metro City." Okay. Yeah. Well, so so well I put those two together, and I was like, "Oh, it must be called Metro." Um, or, or that's just like the nickname, like the Big Apple. <laughs> mm. Or it's a reference to, um, you know, here in um, the metropolitan area or metropolitan yeah. city. Ex- exactly. Taxes. I doubt yeah. it's Metropolis somehow. I know. I know. Well, there's that theory that this is actually Gotham, and I, again, okay. if it is, then that would be a DC reference, and there's some kind of connection there. Mm. Um, I'm not the Tenuous. biggest DC nerd. I know. I know. I know. But <laughs> but I'll throw. There's my podcast. Okay. <laughs> um, so if if I've wrote this down correctly, so we have this scene and um we go into Monday. Do we get our opening credits before we go into Monday? Yes, the way it works is that oh, that first the, the pre-credit sequence mm-hmm. is that it's the introduction of Somerset. It's also the introduction of Mills, because Mills comes to that crime <gasps> scene as well. He meets the crime scene. Yes, he does. Um, and it becomes clear there's certain tension between them. Mm. Um, I mean, in one, in some respects, actually, the film is also kind of a buddy film. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, in the tradition of something like um, Lethal Weapon or 48 mm. Hours, mm-hmm. um, with the, you know, the, the fairly cliched version of it's the wise, older black cop and the younger, um, loose cannon yes. uh, white cop. Um, and yet, Although the film works within that genre cliche, it manages to do some, do many interesting things with it. Yes. Anyway, yeah. so we establish the tension, and then we go into some very very weird uh, credit sequences. Oh. I remember when I saw the film for the first time. Uh-huh. Um, I think myself and each of my parents were like, "What, what was that?" Yeah. Um, yeah. If you get the, um, I have the, um, have, well, I have a. DVD two disc edition of this, but it's from mm-hmm. years ago, so there mm. may be more updates, up to date versions now. But one of the extras on there is all about the construction of these um, of the of that title sequence, um, wow. and the different frame rates used, and the overexposure used to create it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the key thing about that opening sequence is um, it features the title being presented in a way that is weird because technically mm-hmm. the title of the film isn't seven it's seven and yeah 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 se it... the number seven and then uh-huh. en uh-huh. so immediately from the get-go this is telling you that things are off mm-hmm. but and so we have this strange montage of things being cut out and put together and then the song being played over it um is a track by nine inch nails yeah and you don't hear much of the lyrics but the very final lyrics at the very end say you bring me closer to God. Mm-hmm. What this is sort of getting at is an idea of through pain, through suffering, um, mm-hmm. is a way of getting closer to God. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned a link between Seven and Saw. That's mm-hmm. another film that'd be interesting to draw a parallel with is Martyrs. I was going to say Martyrs, yeah. Okay, there we go. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yes. And then we get Monday. And then we get Monday on that on the credits. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the first time I saw it, I was like, "This is different," and it's very eerie and creepy and gross. And I I don't mean that in in a bad way. Like it it really sets the scene of what this film is going to be. And I cannot help now though, whenever I watch it, go, "Well, this is what American Horror Story have ripped off for the past I don't know X amount of years since." Like even the music is so similar. Um, and I know I know Ryan Murphy probably say, oh, it's an homage, but I'm like, mm, there's an homage and then there's a 
straight rip. <laughs> I don't know. I, th- I feel it's a fine line between the Do two. You? <laughs> One person's homage is another person's ripoff. That's fair. And I am also like so biased towards skewing against Ryan Murphy. So maybe that's where I'm sitting. <laughs> <laughs> so we go into Monday. It's raining. It's As it raining. does for most of the movie. For most of the movie, until it doesn't, which is very important. Indeed. <laughs> yes, so the rain, it is dark, and then we see that we... Is this where we uh, we see kind of Mills kind of like getting ready, and he's eagerly you know, putting on his uniform, or his uniform, or his suit, or his tie, and he's right by the phone waiting for it to ring. So he's super eager, eager to get started. And he obviously gets the assignment, like, oh, there's been a, a crime scene, we need you over here. He gets there. He's got a coffee for Somerset. Somerset's gone, no. And I was like, oh. But again, it's this idea. Somerset's very like, I've got seven days until I retire. I don't need to be your mate. You don't need to get me coffee. We're here to do a job. Let's get it done. And again, it is that idea of like, Somerset's already halfway out the door. He's checked out. And Mills wants to prove himself. He wants to prove that he's not just this rookie, as everyone keeps referencing to him. And they get into this house and there's the police and they're again very just like we've not touched anything we haven't moved anything like it's, that's not our job and Mills says have you not even checked for life um life signs or where can't remember the right word is there vital, vital signs. signs vital signs thank you vital signs we check for vital signs and he, he he's like well no once you see him his head is in a bowl of spaghetti he's not breathing and they get in and it's a very dark room and I noticed straight away there are two TVs and we pan over and we see that there is a, well, actually Mills says, someone called Guinness, we have a record here. And that's when the camera pans over and you can see through the flashlight that there is a very large man sat there, looks to be over a kitchen table. Mm -hmm. Uh, Through Mills' reaction, it's obvious it doesn't smell very nice, as I can imagine a dead body that's been dead for a while doesn't smell very good. There are cans of spaghetti sauce all over, like loads of them. Like he's hoarded them. Like the darkest version of Andy Warhol's soup cans. Exactly that, exactly that. And Mills asks, who said this was a murder? And Somerset says, no one. And then Mills goes, well, guys, heart's got to be the size of a canned ham. Mm -hmm. If this isn't a coronary, I can't say that word, coronary, I don't know. And then... Somerset notices that the hands and the feet have been tied with it looks to be barbed wire. There's a bucket of sick under the table. And we realize that this isn't like a case of this large man eating himself to death. He has been forced into this position. I think as looking at it through the lens of fat representation, I'm instantly so against Mills. Because I'm just like, how, again, we come back to this empathy. He is so unempathetic to this victim who he doesn't even believe is murdered to begin with. He just like, oh, well, clearly what happened here was he's ate, ate himself to death. Um, and it isn't until Summer, as again, Somerset's very quiet during all this. He's very methodical. He's, you know, he doesn't want to make any judgments. And then actually at one point he tells he tells Mills to be quiet a few times, right? He's like, I don't need you interfering with my with my process while I deduce the scene. What did you think when you when you watched the scene again with this fat, fatness lens on there? Well, I having you know, with my fatness lens now applied, mm-hmm. um, thanks in 
no small part to listening to earlier episodes of this <laughs> podcast, I was very much thinking about my recollection is that the the gluttony victim, as it mm-hmm. turns out to be, because mm-hmm. um, that's you know this is the first of our seven deadly sins. Here is a man who has been uh, victimized essentially beca- and killed by virtue of gluttony, mm-hmm. virtue gluttony. There's an interesting yeah, that's a really good <laughs> oxymoron there. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I knew that he was presented as something grotesque, mm. and all the appearances of the gluttony victim are designed, I think, to make the viewer, I think, to make get the viewer kind of on so, somewhat on Mills's to agree with Mills. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, Mills is so nasty about it. You know, at one point he says, "How that fat fuck even fit out the door?" And it's like, dude, seriously, that that is not cool. He's dead um, on the table, and yeah. just like no, no respect, no grace. Um, even, even. That's he says that after he knows something is suspect. Mm-hmm. You know, he says that to to the coroner, yeah. and you're just like, where, where, why don't you care, man? Like, why are you not curious to know why this person has been murdered in such a vicious way? You know, this isn't. And again, Somerset brings this up, like, you know, if he wanted to kill him, he could have just gone out and got a gun. This is like process. He's he stopped mm. to get more food at one point to keep feeding this man. And actually, I think it's very important to know at this point we don't know this victim's name. Now, I picked up on this actually. Um, yeah. When you uh, when we were talking about what to, sort of areas to look at, mm. there are funny enough seven victims um, <gasps> in this movie. You don't say, um, and. <laughs> Only two of them are not named. One of them mm-hmm. is the gluttony victim. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, sorry. I lie. The two other victims are yep. not named. And do you know which two of those are? Yeah, it's lust and pride. The women. The women. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one of them women being a sex worker. Indeed. I'm just like, yeah. I know, I know it's 95. I know it's 95, but it is very interesting how the film is positioning its empathy. Like as an audience, you know, it, it, films are showing you a point of view and we can only take what it gives us. And if the film is, I don't know if it's purposefully or it's just accidental where they withhold these specific people's names but it does mean we know less about them we know less about their backstory and it also means we know less about whether they quote unquote deserve their fate indeed i would say you could argue in that respect the film kind of presents us with three perspectives Ooh, okay um you've got we have the perspective of mills mm-hmm. um who i think is to a large extent kind of representing maybe the um, perspective of the city more broadly, Um, certainly in terms of um, the the, something of a disregard uh, towards some. Then you've also got the perspective of John Doe, the murderer, whose victim is very, whose perspective, sorry, is very much of judgment. He is Mm. there to deliver judgment. At least that's how he sees it. And we might be invited to see him, to see things on his perspective. Although I might, I think most of us might think, yeah, I think you went a bit far there, John. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I. I. I understand where he's coming from, but uh, I'm not. I'm not agreeing with him in any mm, way. <laughs> yes, 
And then, of course, we have the perspective of Somerset, who does have empathy, who does have compassion. Mm. And I think we are potentially um, invited to view things his way, Mm -hmm. while at the same time, um, but then perhaps there, there is a broader perspective as well, which is Mills does have some idealism, but his idealism um, also seems somewhat out of place as as much as Somerset's empathy does, because mm. the film as a whole, the world of the film, is one that is so utterly hopeless and nihilistic. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's notable, I think, in, yes, the, and the film is, I think, overall, not particularly sympathetic towards its victims. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it, its emphasis here is on the detectives and we are invited to respond to their response, to their reactions. Mm-hmm. And it's notable, Mills isn't the only one who's contemptuous towards the gluttony victim. The yeah. cap- police captain as well says, oh, come on, somebody had a problem with a fat boy and killed him. Yes. And that's it. That victim is only ever referred to as fat boy. Fat boy. And also, like, it's... To him, that's a justification that yeah. that is a motive. And I'm just like, you're the captain or chief of police. I don't, I don't know what his actual role is, but, you know, high up. And you think that that's like a, you know, oh, that's that's the case. That's it. You know, it's just someone had a problem with a fat person and brutally tortured them to death. And if I'm honest, I do understand where the captain's coming from when Somerset says this is just beginning. Because he's right there's one body like where are you getting that from but obviously we know as re-watchers that Somerset's intuition is spot on but as a as the, as the captain like I, I totally agree with his point of view which is um you're you're exaggerating you're reading too much into this your big brain you turn off that big brain he says right and again it's that that we get a window into how he's treated in, in this department. You know, he's treated as this person who thinks outside of the box what's in the box and he He's admired by the captain. I actually thought like he was his strongest ally. He seemed to like him. Where it like refers to him as old buddy at one old point. Old buddy, he does, he does. And um, where like the beat cops are a lot more not argumentative, but a lot more stern with him and not willing to do like what he needs them to do. So yeah, so to to our to our point, so they get the 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 man into the autopsy room, um, the gluttony victim, I should say. And they say something like, you know, oh, well, Mills says, how does someone let themselves go like that? And then the coroner says it took four orderlies to get him on the table. And then that's when he says, how did the fat fuck get out of his front door? And Somerset says, please, it's obvious he was a shut-in. Yeah. And then and then they question, like, you know, did he eat until he burst? And the coroner says, no, it was hemorrhaging internally. And then they hypothesize that what happened was he passed out. And the, the, the well, we now know John Doe, but the murderer kicked him, which caused the stomach to burst because it was just so full of content. Of content. I want to point out at this point uh, the makeup that went into this scene. So uh, the actor who plays the gluttony victim is a man called Rob Botton. Um, I don't know what size he naturally is, but for the sake of the film, uh, he, oh no, sorry, he led sorry, development no. of practical effects. Bob Bob Mack is the actor That's who it. played the yes. gluttony victim. Yeah, Rob Botton is a renowned makeup artist. That's correct. My mistake. I just need to read further down my notes. So yes, so sorry, all my notes. So he, Rob Botton, researched crime scene photos and police evidence uh, filed, um, and to understand the effects 
that uh, kind of decay would take on like an obese body. And then for gluttony, Bob Mack, as you say, spent 19 hours a day in makeup. Is it 19 or 9? I don't know if that's a typo. Um, must be 9. Can't be 19. Do, 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 do. It's Hannah from Editing. So Bob Mack, who is the actor plays gluttony, spent 10 hours in makeup to get the appropriate prosthetics on to play the gluttony victim. Not 9 or 19. I have no idea what happened with my notes. So I just want to correct myself. It was 10 hours. Speak to you all later. Do, 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 do. Uh, hours a day in makeup and prosthetics he had a scuba like device so he could keep his head down in in the spaghetti bowl uh, and then there was bugs all over him, his cockroaches in the scene and he didn't know that was going to happen so that's sad and apparently brad pitt would keep flicking off the bugs off his body while he had to stay motionless um and then in the autopsy scene they used a fiberglass replica and David Fincher said that they had that fiberglass replica made with a deliberately enlarged penis because he felt bad for Bob Mack because he spent so long in makeup for 30 seconds for 30 seconds of screen time and uh, and I quote at least I could give him a huge cock the funny that, thing being, that cock is maybe on screen for one thirtieth of a second. Yeah, but the thing is, I read that and then I watched this scene and I was like, oh, it is like predominant. Like, yeah, okay. But there's an interesting, I, I, I think I'm picking up on a trend here. So have you seen the show Parks and Recreation? I have not. Okay. So there is a large character in that show called Jerry and he's a larger man and he is like the butt of the joke within the office environment. And apparently the writers on that show said that they felt so bad about how they were constantly mocking Jerry. He was clumsy. He was unlucky. Um, that they decided the only way that they could like make themselves feel better is if they canonically made it made it clear that his character had a big penis. And so it comes up because he's gone to like a doctor's appointment and the doctor says, I have no idea whether Jerry has the mumps because he has the largest penis I've ever seen. And that's now canon. And I was like thinking at the time, like, oh, that feels really weird. Like, why is that like redemption for taking taking the mick out of this larger character for X amount of years of writing? And then you've kind of atoned for your sins by giving the character a large penis and then i hear see here they did the exact same thing for this large character and i'm just wondering i'm a woman i don't i don't understand the penis envy <laughs> but i'm just like is that something that like i don't I, do you have any comment on that vincent i'll put you into i'll put you on the spot here <laughs> i yeah well yeah i think it's um it's a very sort of, I think, crude uh, way of approaching the issue. It's present the idea here is that being fat is an is a misfortune. Yes. Being well hung is mm. a boon. So that's mm. I think we're trying to balance the cosmic scales here. Yeah. Um, now, you know, men like to talk about how um, you know big our cocks are mm. <laughs> i'm not going to discuss my own role in that i I, I thank you i thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> um it's but it is i mean it is a terrible cliche really you know the whole yeah. idea of you know how do men you know men literally measuring up 
um, yes, against yeah, each other. It's yeah. like this is the time to measure dick size. By that, <laughs> do you mean bank account size? Yeah. Do you mean car size? Ooh, what are you compensating mm, for? Exactly. So yeah. But what's interesting in this context, well, both the contexts we've got here, both in Parks and Recreation and Seven, mm. we give the guy a huge dick mm-hmm. because, oh, poor fellow, he's really fat. Yeah. Isn't all that? I mean, in the context of Seven, you know, David Fincher wanting that because it was he felt bad for Bob Mack because of all the work he was putting in for mm-hmm. you know not a great deal of screen time. But it can also work in the sense of, well, everything about this guy is big. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. But I but weirdly, thinking about the way, I mean, when we see the mm-hmm. gluttony victim naked on the autopsy table. I mean, you know, you see his if, if he's well endowed, fair enough. I haven't touched, I haven't looked closely enough. Mm. But even so, he is still very much this figure of pitifulness and of grotesquerie. His yeah. body on there is mm-hmm. presented as revolting. Yeah, that's and in terms of how the audience are invited to respond, um, and you know, and and the way the characters uh, in general. Uh, respond to him of course later on when uh, john doe is listing his various victims he Mm. describes this obese man who is disgusting to be mocked who is so sickening that if you saw him you wouldn't be able to finish your meal Mm. um and again it's like seems a bit excessive um it it does yeah yeah but at the same time the film is kind of in it does it is inviting Mm. that perspective that we could look at them and at this enormous but uh, but there's a question i suppose are we finding this figure grotesque because he's fat mm-hmm. or because this is a dead person who is or because he's dead and decomposing mm-hmm. uh, it's i mean in fairness in that case it's probably a combination i was going to say i think it's a combination i think when we get to sloth which is at the other end of the body extreme it's indeed it's the same it's inviting the same reaction, but for, <laughs> I mean the pun here, the opposite end of the scale, because mm. you have a, a very a very emanci- emancipated man, emaciated. emaciated man. And yeah, so we've got, the, it's interesting how we have two victims of like opposite ends of the spectrum of weight and the reaction or our, the audience reaction should be, you know we should be revolted we should be disgusted i think there's a sense of um shame as well especially with gluttony i think you're meant to feel like ashamed of him for him because again to mills's point uh how does someone let themselves go to that like how do you let yourself go there um somerset says he was a shut-in you know, so he was ashamed to let himself be seen by others because he knew the judgment that would, you know, befall him. If that's true, again, they're just they they don't know they're hypothesizing, um, and I think that's what as an audience member you're meant to feel like. Oh, I get that. Like if I was if I was that fat, I would be ashamed. I would be I wouldn't want to be seen out in public, and the film is inviting you to not only empathize on that level of like disgust but also agree with gluttony's reasons for staying hidden. I see what you mean. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I, I would say in the case of Somerset's deduction that he was a mm. shot in, I suspect that was also to do with other elements of the, 
apartment where they found him the in terms of the windows being... being blacked out, the two televisions, um, yes. the supplies oh, in yes. there. I, I was going to say that the two televisions I thought was very interesting. So again, it's this idea of like he was TV obsessed, couch potato laziness. And I was like, oh, that's an, like another interesting parallel they're adding to this character. I did query whether like how much i mean the tvs i totally agree was the victim but whether the sh- um the blackout windows was meant to be john joe or whether that was the victim doing that to shield himself from the world i didn't know and i don't think it doesn't actually necessarily matter because both make sense yeah in the grander scheme but it did it did um it did pop into my head there so, is a pattern here interestingly mm, but um, i think there is a pattern of fat representation on screen in relation to shut-ins mm-hmm. um have i mean i think um you've on your list of like future films you, uh, films you're going to talk about the whale i will do yes which features a shut-in also yes. do you or are you familiar with the film or what's eating gilbert grape i knew you were going to say what's eating gilbert grape in that moment so okay. yeah yeah i'm aware yeah. of the mum character in that one also a shut-in who yes never moves from the tv from the, watching the tv on the couch yeah so yeah. I think in that respect, when Somerset says obviously a shut-in, I think mm. that he's that that line put in there by uh, by that's Andrew Kevin Walker sort of mm-hmm. drawing on cultural understandings yes. of people like that, and it does. You're absolutely right. Tie to the idea of the shame of mm. being big, of mm-hmm. being fat, of being obese. That it is something you, um, yeah, that, that that is to be looked upon with a certain amount of shame okay yes. and to stay with david fincher mm-hmm. you kind of get that in fight club with a character <gasps> bob played that by meatloaf? the late the late great meatloaf oh, best in peace. absolutely yeah absolutely mm-hmm. i saw meatloaf in concert like eight times um, oh oh I'm, I'm so sorry that must have been a real shock for you then when he went yeah it was a bit yeah um to be fair you know he was quite elderly <laughs> yeah. um um anyway but in Fight Club, Meatloaf's character Bob mm-hmm. um, is, you know, he, you know, he's very much somebody who is ashamed of his body. Mm. In his case, it's, his body has become feminized because he's got, as they call him, bitch tits. Yes, um, they do. But he of is, course. yeah, but he is clearly very much, you know, afflicted by shame. Mm-hmm. And I think we could read the same into the fat into the fat man um, in Seven, the gluttony victim. And interestingly, yeah. the more I think about him, the more empathy uh the more sympathy i feel for him it's like oh poor guy um totally you know he didn't need us to eat a salad he didn't need to go to a gym the guy needed a hug the guy needed company the last thing he needed was some fucker sticking a gun in his face and saying eat 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 (sighs) eat to be fair none of us need that we none of us need that but also now we're talking how did john don't know of him if he's a shut-in like they say how did John? How did he pop up on John Doe's radar? Good question, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe. I guess you could ask that. I mean, the other ones are a bit more obvious because they are in the public eye to a certain degree. Yes. Bar maybe lust and pride, which we'll get into. Um. So the oh, next no, question... pr- pride certainly would have been. So okay, well, okay, let's get there later. Um. Where? Okay. Why does? Why do you think the film starts with gluttony? Because when they start looking into the text of of the deadly sins, deadly sins is that the yep. right word? Yeah, deadly sins. <laughs> I can't say what. That's not what it's called. Yes, it is. Um, 
they reference uh, Dante's purgatory, purgatory, and Mills says, "Ah, oh, but the first terrace is pride." Uh, so why is he starting with gluttony? And Summer said something like, "Oh, he's taking influence. He's not. He's not yeah. doing it verbatim." But why would the film choose for gluttony to be the first victim? I think that's largely a um, a structural aspect. Mm. I remember seeing um, yeah uh, interview Andrew Kevin Walker saying that serial killer narratives are brilliant for screenwriters because it gives you this very straightforward structure mm. victim investigation victim investigation works just fine um and i think the way having the gluttony be the first victim interestingly does add to the anonymity because mm-hmm. when they first find the victim they somerset doesn't discover gluttony written at the crime scene until after they've found the second crime scene which is mm-hmm. greed Yes. Um, so I think so. In, in that respect, that first crime scene comes across. Uh, it, it it allows the mystery to kind of be developed because it's like, firstly, they're not even sure it's murder. Secondly, they're not entirely sure mm-hmm. how this is mm-hmm. a homicide. Uh, and then there's the thing about um, Somerset saying that this isn't your stand. This is not a standard murder. This mm-hmm. is because this is because of this takes purpose. Um, this the act itself has meaning. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a matter of giving the audience a sense, an increasing sense that there is more to this than may, may immediately appear. Mm-hmm. Um, and notably, of course, when Mills then goes to deal with initially, they're both assigned to this case. Mills is reassigned to investigate another case, yes. which turns out to be the greed victim. And then it turns out, oh look, they're connected. Who'd have thought it? I know. Um, and I think, but that one is very, is a lot more blatant because, you know, yes. the word greed is not hidden. Um, yes. So I would say that's why. Um, mm. and, but I think it does, it is interesting that it is the most anonymous victim that, yes, he may have been a shut-in or, so indeed, how did Don, John Doe find out about him? Well, maybe Doe saw, happened to see him on the street a couple mm. of years ago and was like, Oh God, that man is so fat. I want to kill him. Mm. Um, and then sort of, you know, kept and then found where he lived. And then when the time was right, okay, fella, you're gonna <laughs> eat and eat until I say otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. So and I think I th- that's why we start with gluttony. I totally, I totally hear your point. And as well, potentially to um I think because gluttony's victim is so to to what we've been saying it's grim and i think it was i can only imagine in 95 or 96 whenever you did watch this it was quite shocking to see something so um grotesque and and revolting and i think it it sets the tone for what the film's going to be and absolutely and the thing is it's not it's not so um gory that it would turn people off straight away like say for example if they switched it with sloth (laughs) (laughs) you need to like ramp up to that uh but yeah i think i totally agree i think i think there's a a few different things at play and i think mainly it's narratively but it also sets up that tension between somerset and mills and we really see the differences in their um, approach to detective work and so let me get into that then uh so we you mentioned there we go into so we go into greed uh, on the tuesday and it's a defense attorney named eli gold so this is our first named victim Mm -hmm. and greed is written in blood 
And what I find really interesting about this moment is Mills asks the other cops to leave the room so he could be there on his own. And I felt that that was very much him trying to take something from Somerset and just sit there in silence and try and look at the different angles. And I thought already he's trying to like follow in his footsteps. Did did you catch that or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He 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 asks the other. He get he tells the other cops to leave the um, forensic team, and then yes, he sits down in the. Um, and it, it looks like he's sort of absorbing the scene himself yes. as he kind of imagines Somerset does. Because I would mm. expect, just to go into, I guess, the backstory of both characters, mm-hmm. Mills will have probably, you know, read a lot of Somerset's cases and understands that, that Somerset is a great detective. Yes, well, he um, says, you read my file, which indicates he's read Somerset's file. Mm. So, To which Somerset is like, nope. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I? I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm not exactly. He's so checked out. He's like, why would I do that? Uh, and, and the thing is, like, this case is so compelling because of, like, just the nature. Obviously, these people are being killed. And then you get the deadly sins element into it. You can see, like, Somerset be like, I can't get into this. I can't get into this. But of course, of course, he can't help himself. He goes to the library to start reading up on the literature around the deadly sins. And actually, this is the first moment I noticed peace. So when he walks into the library, he obviously knows the um, security guards who are there playing poker. And we don't hear any more sirens. We are actually, the, we've got classical music instead. Uh, there's no one else around. There's no chaos. Because even in like the precincts, there's chaos. There's you know, things all over all the desks. Yeah, so I, I thought that was a really interesting kind of parallel. And I really felt like this was Somerset's safe place. And I guess, you know, the, the, the security guards are aware that he's retiring, so they might not see him anymore. And I wonder whether he would... I can imagine even if he did retire, he'd still do that because, like, that's his little safe space to go when he can't sleep. Except the well, yes, quite possibly. Um, something that is that was in sort of some deleted scenes. Oh, okay. um, is uh, that uh, Somerset isn't just leaving the police; he's leaving the city. Oh, that makes so much sense. Now, in some of the deleted scenes, there are actually points where he's looking around a house out in the country. Um, which weirdly looks a lot like um, you know some of the scenes we see of Morgan Freeman towards the very end of the Shawshank Redemption, but that's oh, literally another story. Yeah. Um, having said that, none of this um, is in the film itself, so you know mm-hmm. we don't necessarily have to say it, except for two little hints. Okay. One of them being um, that in the very opening scene when Somerset is preparing his equipment, as it were, for the day, like his gun and his badge and his switchblade, he's also got this little patch of what turns out is actually within the wider context a bit of wallpaper it's a little bit of wallpaper that he can put up in his new home and perhaps the one explicit point when he gets in the taxi to go to the library he said mm-hmm. the cab driver asks him where you're heading mm-hmm. and, and somerset's reply is far away from here yes so he is on his way out of the city as well notable of course how the film ends perhaps mm. um but I do think, yeah, I do find you're, you're absolutely right describing the library scene as peaceful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also interesting in terms of looking sort of in the moment, but also backwards, because we yeah. have this montage of Somerset in the library reading yes. through what turns out to be the inspiration uh, for the killer. But we also see Mills at home 
looking at crime scene photographs. Although we don't see the gluttony victim again, we do see pictures of him. Mm-hmm. Um, again, looking you know pretty ghastly. Uh, to be fair, he is dead. Um, <laughs> and so it's a matter of Mills is very much about that immediacy, the immediacy of the, of the photograph, the moment literally captured in time. Um, while Somerset is looking back, he's looking, you know, uh, towards the inspiration, towards the history, towards the, and as he says, you know, culture, uh, as the mm-hmm. guards rather say, hey, we've got culture playing yes. classical music, yes. which again kind of echoes the Shawshank Redemption, I suppose. Mm, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think as well, like this, this is definitely, we have already got a taste of their different approaches to to the, the job, but here we really see kind of the differences in how their minds work. So Mills is very much like to your point, like he's like, well, this is the case, so I'm looking at the case, mm-hmm. where Somerset clearly is a very well-educated person and is, you know, a researcher of some type who's like, oh, well, there's got to be some kind of motive here. Let's go into the motive. Let's understand, you know, where these deadly sins come from. And he's coming from a place of, I need, I want to help. Uh, But it's interesting because he gives a note to Mills to say, look at these texts. And then next day we see that Mills has asked one of the cops to go get the cliff notes of of yep. like of is it um canterbury tales and uh, paradise you know, lost uh, yeah dante's inferno yeah because we see mills trying to read some of it then he, yes. he gives up very quickly very you know, quickly so speaking as an as an academic i very mm-hmm. much applaud somerset's uh, meticulous approach to research and uh, <laughs> seeing uh mills go for the easy approach i'm like oh dear me that's not going to be a, an an interesting essay to mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Um, I've just I've just realized while I'm looking at my notes, I've missed one of my favorite lines of the film. It's when they're in the bit, the kind of the bullpen of of all the different desks, and the captain is there, and it rings, and he hands, he's like, "This ain't even my desk," and shuts it down. <laughs> and there's some really good little one-liners like that, like just speckled yeah. into the film which again going back to your buddy buddy cop kind of analogy you would you would have that in those films and it in some ways it gives you a bit of levity in this incredibly dark film yeah the um, best point being i mean i'm jumping ahead slightly here when um somerset is invited for dinner at yes. the mills's home yeah and they're sitting there having the nice they've had the nice dinner and then the house then the flat the place vibrates yes yes somerset describes it as soothing relaxing vibrating house <laughs> and they all burst out laughing <laughs> it's so good and they're like really laughing i think it's the only time we see that like it's definitely the only time we see somerset smile let his guard down and we are going to get into that scene quickly um, because we find that you know he's reading the cliff notes. They they're now in each other's office, and uh, Tracy, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, has uh, rings up her husband and is like, "Put me on with your partner, I guess." Yeah. And I get, I I just love this. Um, I don't know it, this confidence from Tracy. Like I know they are not talking because I know my husband and I know cops, right? <laughs> and she has to be this mediator between the two. And she invites him round and they. she goes, I've heard so much about you, but I don't know your first name. And that's when we find out that uh, Somerset's first name is William and Mills's first name is David. And she says, William meet David, David meet William. Like you are 
people. And I find this watch that I was really watching Tracy. So I want you want to understand in a role, sorry, in a film where there's not many women, Indeed. what what is Tracy's role here? And she just seems to be this light, this potential light, this potential like virtue in this dark, apathetic <laughs> city. And she's like a nurturer, clearly. She's a mediator. She's a teacher. She's going to be a mother. And I find it really interesting, just even like she says things like, I don't like guns. You know, I don't like guns. And and Somerset says, yeah, same here. You know, she she asks him why she why has he never found a relationship someone similar to herself I guess that she is for Mills and and you know we get a bit more backstory he was close once he was obviously had some kind of relationship at some point but it it, it didn't work out um, I mean it's very clear that Tracy doesn't like the city and she's you only think? been yeah she's been there a few days mm. <laughs> and she already doesn't like the city so why why is Tracy important to these two characters bonding? Well, I think you use the, the most important term already. She is a mediator. Mm-hmm. She also represents what ostensibly both of them do this job for. I mean, why else do cops do the things that they do? Well, okay, some of them probably do it. Well, I've done a lot of uh, research and writing into um, cop movies. Um, there are various reasons as to why it's done. But the, I guess the romanticised reason that police officers do what they do, at least within movies, is to protect the innocent. And that is what Tracy represents. We spoke earlier about the innocence of children. Yes. Um, but... Tracy isn't exactly, she's not desperately naive because she recognises all the horrible things around her, but Mm -hmm. she is so um, uh, resistant to it. She wants to be away from it. I think it's interesting that you use the term light, Mm. uh, which is fascinating. There is a really uh, great uh, book written about Seven. Um, It's from the, uh, it's in the series of books from the British Film Institute, BFI Classics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's written by Richard Dyer, um, who's a very you know, respected um, academic. Um, and as well as writing a book about Seven, he also wrote a book all about film stars. He was, you know, mm-hmm. was quite famous for that, his book called Stars. And, some, and a big part of that book is to do with lighting. I'm sorry, no, it wasn't, he wrote a book called Stars. He also wrote a book called Race. That's the one I'm talking about. Okay. And in that book, he talked extensively about the way um, white actors and actors mm-hmm. of colour are lit. Wow, okay. Similarly, he talks about the way Gwyneth Paltrow is lit in Seven. Mm-hmm. And in a film that is pre- predominantly, not only thematically, but yeah. also literally dark. Yes. We were talking earlier about critical response. There were some critics who actually complained about the film saying, I couldn't see what was going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But when Tracy is on screen... We see her. She is lit in such a way to let us know what she represents. Note mm-hmm. also at the first crime scene, mm-hmm. Somerset finds a quotation from Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Long is the way and hard that up from hell leads up to light. Mm-hmm. So that is what Tracy represents, I think. She represents the light. She represents what 
our in inverted commas heroes um are fighting for um and notably and therefore of course which makes her death all mm-hmm. the more devastating because it's like well there's a light snuffed out very easily yeah um now in terms of representation of women the film is not great mm-hmm. um i mean you know let's face it mainstream cinema in general not great <laughs> in terms of representation of women yeah um in that uh, there is a common tendency to present women in these largely symbolic terms not as having much in the way of um character not having much in the way of their then they only ex- really exist in relation to the men yes um, tracy's purpose in the film is to be a wife and yes. to not be a mother <laughs> as mm. it turns out and to be a victim um, yeah you know uh, it's you know if you get any movie that actually manages to give you a set of women that are detailed and that is a rare thing one of your previous mm. episodes spoke about bridesmaids which does yes. that aspect wonderfully um so seven is a product of its time but also mm-hmm. a product of its of well the patriarchy in that regard you know it's been yeah. rich coming from me here's no. a uh you know, uh, here's a ben- I- I'm a beneficiary of the patriarchy every day, mm-hmm. um, but I will call myself out on it. I was going to um, say, like, you know, we we have to like call out like our privilege where we see it. Otherwise, you know, there's no point. We have to be allies where we where we need to be. So I appreciate yeah. you like you know saying all that because I I totally agree. I I I find Tracy Tracy's storyline in this really really sad actually. Um, Again, like it's something I didn't appreciate before. Um, because again, like I probably was just a bit of a gore hound and I was like, oh, what a great twist. But reading it now with this, like, you know, I'm in my 30s now, um, families all around me, kids, and I just see Tracy as this really tragic figure in the story for obvious reasons. But then also, I actually think Gwyneth Paltrow plays her so well, as much as that, like, she isn't given a lot. What she does do, I find really poignant. Um, so the scene where you know she, she's so honest with Somerset and to let her know like she doesn't like living in the city. What could she do? Because she goes to Somerset, someone who's lived there for decades at this point. You know, almost like does it get better? And Somerset again is very honest back. You know, meets hit, hit her honesty with his honesty and says, that, "Yeah, uh, no, like you know, I didn't want to bring a child into this world. That's how. That's how." negative i see it but then he get you know he says that if you do decide to not continue the pregnancy never tell mills but if you do decide to keep it spoil the child rotten Mm. and they both tear up at that moment it's a really lovely scene and again like i I really applaud gwyneth for for being able to bring that kind of sentimentality to her role which is not given a lot uh but yeah i think what I again kind of bring it back to the deadly sins for a second. So she if she's the opposite of a deadly sin, so she's like a a cardinal virtue. One of the cardinal virtues is temperance. And this is it's almost like the opposite of gluttony, right? So this idea of like you uh moderate. And I found that word when I was looking at it earlier, I was like, well, moderation really, really comes into play with diet culture. So when if you're ever on a diet or if you've been on any kind of weight loss thing, they will say, oh, we can have it all in moderation, right? And it, there is a real line between um, diet culture 
patriarchy, how women are expected to be within their families, be the kind of moral guiding light of the family, of the home, of wherever they are. They're like the emotional uh, bearers, they're the teachers, they're the nurturers, everything that Tracy is in this film. And yet I couldn't help but notice, like again, to your point, like she really is a product of the patriarchy that she's in. Not only her as a character, but how she has been written. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Seven is a film written, produced, directed by men um, and therefore <laughs> utilising the figure of woman in, oh, that's, that'll do. That's how, that'll that's, do. That's, that's, that, that, I mean, I don't want to be quite so vicious to say that the, you know, these men are saying, well, that's what women are, but I think it's more along the lines of thinking that's what how women work in movies. Yeah. In the sense of think of a patriarchal product mm-hmm. intended for an assumed patriarchal audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always baffling, I think, that you know, historically women were recognized as a very significant audience. And, you know, there's the idea of um, from the 1930s, mm-hmm. um, Hollywood produced what was known as the woman's film, mm-hmm. um, which were, funnily enough, successful. Um, and yet somewhere along the line and by somewhere along the line, I think it was kind of in the 1970s, cinema became well hollywood cinema anyway became seemed to assume a predominantly male audience um uh, which is not which is you know bad for business i mean come on yeah. you know, don't alienate half the population in yeah. that way you'll make more money um and yet we do see these interesting incorporations of here's how we can bring do something which might appeal to uh to the female audience i was looking up actually what the all of the cardinal virtues are wisdom justice courage temperance faith mm. hope and love mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think yeah you could find those i mean you could find um hope i think and love certainly as well as temperance in tracy you could argue that both um mills and somerset have an element of courage oh, and definitely. certainly somerset has wisdom and justice yes then about faith not much of that there's certainly mm. very little faith and hope <laughs> no no, but, but then I guess that's that's John Doe's whole po- point, right? Yes, is that we're in a godless society, so that 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 makes sense actually. Um, so we'll move on from Tracy, and we find that Somerset and Mills are like doing some work at home. They're looking through the crime scene photos of Greed, and they realize it's a pound of flesh. They he was forced to cut off, you know, s- some part of his body and put it on the scales. Notably. Uh, Mills is again scornful and dismissive and yes. refers to what did our greed victim cut off? A love handle. Love handle, yeah. So another reference to fatness. Yeah, um, absolutely. As well. And again, it's interesting because there is that moment where they question whether the police will work um, just as hard as any other murder case because it's a defence attorney who <laughs> arguably works against the DA. Um, and then again, you hear this, again, apathy, this this lack of compassion from Mills towards this victim. It's just like, you know, if the press heard you, mate, you have a field day. <laughs> <laughs> so, Which got... is interesting considering the later photograph. Oh, oh yes, exactly that. So we'll, we'll get there soon. So they find that there's a, pic- there's a picture of the defense attorney's wife on the wall it has red circles around it made little blood circles around her eyes so they go and talk to her and she looks through the crime scene photos and says ah this pic this painting is upside down must be a clue so they go to the painting uh they can't figure it out and then until it's not until again somerset using like his instinct 
dusts the wall behind the painting and he finds prints that spell out is it help me help me that's right help, help me notably you've got the um yeah the, the print uh yeah the, the fingerprint tech guy he's uh you know, doing his he's doing his thing on the wall. Mm -hmm. This is pre CSI, but not I, long pre CSI. No, yeah, yeah, Prince Lab. Um, yeah, yeah, um, doing his thing, and he says, "Well, these are not the fingerprints of the victim." And interestingly, Mills asks Somerset, "Have you ever seen anything like this?" And yes. Somerset's like, "Nope, no." So the and if you think about, and you know, me neither. I can't think of any other movie that has used the device of. <laughs> a message written in fingerprints. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. No, not off the top of my head, but maybe I need to Google that later. But they get a hit. They get a hit on the prints, and it's this man called Theodore Victor Allen, who mm -hmm. is a drug dealer and pedophile, and yes. he was his his lawyer was Eli Gold. So this is our first connection mm -hmm. between the victims, which I think is very interesting. While they're on the way to the latest residence of of Victor, because they're like, this is definitely him, this is definitely him. <laughs> I love their confidence here. Mills and Somerset have a conversation in the car about their gun and whether or not they've ever had to pull out their gun and fire it. And Somerset says he's only ever had to pull out his gun three times and he's never... He's never fired. Oh, they, I think the conversation actually starts with, have you ever taken a shot? Like, actually taken a bullet? And then it goes into, like, have you ever fired your gun? And we find that Somerset has very rarely taken out his gun and has never fired his gun. And then we have Mill say that he's taken out his gun, is it three times or something like that? Mm -hmm. And he has shot someone once when he was a rookie. And he, you can see he can't remember the person's name. And I find it very interesting. Well, I think crucially, he's talking about he was with another officer, and the, and the other officer was shot. Yes, That's in the arm. He's trying to remember. Yeah. Yes, but Somerset looks almost horrified to hear this that this that this man has you know witnessed witnessed this thing, and not only that, can't remember the name, and it's like he he can't like he doesn't respect the human life. That he can't even remember this person's name. That he almost died. Possibly. Um, okay, I read it differently. I got no, the sense what was, of that. What, was a, what was you reading? That seemed to me like an important bonding moment between them because Mills is clearly distressed over this. Ah. I mean, he's trying to remember the guy's name and he feels mm -hmm. really bad, I think, yeah. he can't. And I think that's Somerset thinking like, yeah, I, I get that. That That's yes, that's tough. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that's that's how I read it. Yeah, no, fair. I mean, both could be true, right? We don't know. So we get so we get to the apartment or the the block of flats that is in, and the SWAT team go in first. And someone said something like, "They love this." <laughs> and they like bash oh, yes. down the door. Yes, <laughs> and uh, they run in. Speaking and... of guys waving their dicks around. Well, well, <laughs> this is the thing because then because the SWAT team call for dicks for detectives. Dicks, dicks, yep. get in here. And yeah, we've got we've got the SWAT led by John C. McGinley or Dr. Cox. I can't ever see <laughs> anything else. They find a a room filled with those car air fresheners, the tree ones. Mm -hmm. And they come in, they, like, the detectives come in and they're shouting at the man like, get up, get up. And they, or they think they pull off the sheet and they think he's he's dead. He must be. This man is completely just skin and bone, sores all over him. I, I think is he he must be bound. Oh, go on. Yeah, he is. Um, he is. Yeah, he's, t he's strapped to the bed. Although one of the one of the SWAT team says it's some kind of friggin' wax sculpture. They don't even think it's a a body. 
Oh, I did. I uh, missed that. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's how like unhuman this person looks. And yeah, they go up to him like, and again, like it's like he doesn't even have a mouth anymore. It just looks like it's just gums. It's it really is back to the word we use for gluttony, grotesque. It really is awful like oh my god how does someone get to this point you must be like been decomposing for ages how did no one know and obviously you can see the air freshers disguising the smell and um dr cox <laughs> sorry is his name california in this california yes yeah california so california yeah swat captain goes up and he gets right into his face and he says you deserve this which again is very interesting and then that's when we get this jump scares of all jump scares where he like the sloth <laughs> yeah. Yeah. oh it's I think horrible we all jump out of our skin at that point <laughs> yeah they all jump back and we realize that this skeleton of a person is still alive barely barely alive and obviously they call the ambulance and they, and they come in and I just again it is it is a jump scare to end all jump scares and I quickly looked at again how they created agreed to this man created this victim so for sloth they spent 11 days experimenting with prosthetics to get the right look with uh, the actor Michael Reed McKay he was um 5 foot 5 and he weighed 45 kilos so he's a very light man and they actually asked him to lose more weight which I think <laughs> is insane. So his BMI, as it is, is he's already, I mean, I know the BMI is trash, but he's already considered underweight. So the fact that they asked him to lose more, I just think it's really like irresponsible. But anyway. Too bad uh, Christian Bale was busy. Oh, well, well, one day he's probably going to come up on this podcast at some point. So, so then, so they went the makeup route and the makeup took 14 hours a day to apply and the actor, um, what's his name? Sorry, Michael Reed McKay. He said that it was a very strenuous experience. You know, the fact that like when he's in the room, he's not able to move, barely able to breathe because obviously he's meant to look dead. Mm. Um, and he actually said that when he would, um, when he's like uh, coughs to scare to scare California, that was actually a relief for him because finally he can breathe. You know, and he also says that. Um, they had to keep hosing him down with water, which made him cold. And you're just like, oh, this poor man. Commitment to the craft, I tell you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, like, what what are your thoughts when you... Can you remember what you first thought of when you saw this scene? Oh, yeah. Um, it was... I think it was a combination of... Uh, I mean, when we first see Victor, when we get mm -hmm. the, the sheet pulled off him, it's just a matter of, oh, God, uh, that's horrendous. Um, yeah. And then the point when we get the jump scare, if it turns out he's still alive, that was complete shock. Um, it's shock. It's horror. It's you know disbelief. It's like wait, what? He, yeah. Huh? Uh? And then we you know we we don't stay there. You know we cut away fairly quickly to the hospital where he's mm -hmm. where we get the doctor giving again a fairly unsympathetic assessment of him. The doctors are like, well, you know, his brain is mush. He chewed off his tongue. He's suffered as much pain and suffering as anyone I've seen. And uh, he's got hell to look forward to. Like, yes. Wow. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Grim. I, that's it. Like, you know, this is this is potentially the worst case he's ever seen. But interestingly, with this victim, we get a really clear understanding of why he would be targeted you know yes. if, you, if you look at legality um so if you look at gluttony um they 
in John Doe's opinion, ate too much, overconsumed, and it became too too fat for his liking. With uh, greed, you know, he's a defense attorney, so he got, I think, to his point, murderers and rapists off free, off scot free, and he takes money for that. And then we get to Sloth, and this man is a drug dealer and pedophile who didn't serve the time he should have done for his crimes because his his um, lawyer was greed, and. And again, California really reiterates that by saying that like, you deserve this. You don't deserve to live. Like you're an, a bad man. And yet he's given arguably like one of the worst, most torturous fates and no one empathizes or or should they empathize? It, again, I guess it, question, it challenges your morals as an audience member of like, okay, where's the line? <laughs> because this person is clearly not a good egg, but no one should be treated this way, surely. Because bear in mind, of course, his torture has been going on for a year. A year. He has been strapped to that bed for a year, kept yes. alive, but... Hand cut off. Mm -hmm. So yeah. so John Doe could spread his prints where he needed to. And again, Mills is very naive in this moment, saying like, oh, it's just luck. It's just luck that we got there on the day. Like, you know, and, and someone says like, no, this is planned. This is meticulously planned. You know, we are just following what we're meant to be following. Someone and said describes the killer as methodical, exacting, methodical. and worst of all, patient. Yes, exactly that. And again, patience is a virtue, right? It's not one of these cardinal virtues. I don't oh, is it think. not? Is um, it unless, not? I'm just quoting a, the mummy. Unless it's <laughs> <laughs> unless it's a synonym for temperance, I suppose. Oh, maybe. But yeah, but absolutely, he is. He is uh, dangerously patient. <laughs> yeah, dangerously patient. I wanted. I, I. I never fully understood why this victim is considered a, the deadly sin of sloth. True. I suppose it's a matter of perhaps um, was he also a drug taker as well as a drug I, dealer. I think that is implied because I, yeah. I I think John Doe might say that in his you know final explanation he might explain i think he says something oh, I have he to, says I have he's to a drug it. dealer a drug dealing pederast pederast yes that's the word yeah but that's but that's, okay. but that's another no. word for pedophile yeah exactly um that was the impression i got that sloth um victor is was a junkie yeah okay okay that that makes sense then we're back at the crime scene i believe and there's a photographer comes in because obviously he's paid off someone to get in because that's how the media works in this city and mills gets so angry and frustrated you know he's screaming at this guy like get out of my face get out of here blah, blah. and uh yeah he's kind of wrathful yeah Ooh, spoiler <laughs> <laughs> but and it's interesting because somerset says like you know it's interesting to watch a man feed off his emotions Yes. And again, it's this it, looking at the two of them, you know, we have Somerset, who's very logical, and we have Mills, who's very close to emotions. And again, it's a very, um, there's that thing where they say uh, men don't uh, believe that their emotions are actually logic. So they don't see anger mm. as an emotion. And again, I, yeah. I think with Mills, I find I actually really understand his reaction in that moment. I think I would have been angry too. Mm -hmm. But Somerset is like, I don't know, it's almost just kind of like, come back, come back, you know, focus on focus on the task at hand. Don't just have a go at some random photographer, you know, like don't let it out on him. We've got to get back to the task. Would you have got angry in that moment? 
Angry at the photographer, yes, I completely mm-hmm. get that. Interestingly, that comes after Mills is showing a lot of anger and frustration about the case. I mean, that that's, uh, I mean, Somerset yeah. clarifies, you know, says that, you know, we need to divorce ourselves from emotion, which mm-hmm. makes sense because in the context of, you know, methodical police work, emotion can cloud judgment. Mm. Um, and to be fair, I think Mills's judgment is dubious at best anyway. <laughs> um yeah however the but i suppose it is very interesting thinking about what happens later in the film mm. that we find that um should we spoil this now we yeah, can spoil right. let's go for it um that uh the photographer mm. is actually john doe yes um and we find this out later that's who he was uh mills refers to it the fucking photographer on the fucking stairs <laughs> um but it is interesting yeah. that if that um John Doe appears, takes the photo, he makes Mills very angry, and that is the climax of the film, that mm-hmm. John Doe makes Mills so angry that Mills becomes the final victim, Wrath. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an interesting, we don't know it at the time, but it is a foreshadowing of Definitely. the finale. Definitely is a foreshadowing. Uh, and yet, reasonable, I think, even yeah. though, yeah, I think Mills, is, even though we may not entirely admire Mills throughout, I think all of his reactions are very understandable and very human. Yes. You might like to think, oh, yes, yes, totally. I'd be like Somerset. I'd be your calm, cool, and reserved. Would, I would you, though? No. Would you? I truly wouldn't. I know that. And I know myself enough to be like, no, I would be so quick to anger, especially in that moment, especially three victims down, no closer to the killer. You know, being made of a mockery because you are literally following the killer's plan like you are not in any way ahead of the game and mm-hmm. i think in that moment like they're so aware of that they are so aware that they are made no progress <laughs> and so so we move into friday and that's when tracy asks uh somerset to meet her down at the diner and we hear that she's pregnant and she doesn't know what to do then we go back to the police station and mills and somerset are reviewing their evidence and Mills again very much still in his anger starts um calling the killer a lunatic you know he's crazy he's insane and Somerset's really imploring him to you know don't be so dismissive you know like that you don't underestimate this man he's already three down if he manages to complete his plan he, he will got another four we can't just i don't know there's something so patronizing i'm not saying that john doe isn't clinically insane i'm just saying it's patronizing to think of him as just you know just a crazy just a lunatic and i also thought it really undermines the deaths of the victims as well because it's like oh well they fell trapped to this lunatic you know it's like but you're falling into the trap mills this is projection (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i'll just drop a quick little fun fact um, about this yeah um, mills says you know this killer's a nutbag just because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him yoda <laughs> yeah. david fincher one of david fincher's earliest um films that he worked on was the empire strikes back oh what did he do on that one i think he was like um, a second camera operator something like that oh brilliant oh that's it. David Finch remembering his roots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But of so, course, it's important that he says, 
that Mills uses the phrase library card because yes. that takes us into our next development. Exactly that. So that's when Somerset goes like, well, let's have a field trip. How much money have you got? I've got 50 bucks. And they, they're sitting, again, it's like a pizzeria and they're sitting in a booth, but side by side. And we have a little bit of gay panic where Mills, <laughs> I don't want people to think that we're dating, very 90s. And this man walks in and uh, clearly knows Somerset, but says, oh, I didn't know it's going to be a menage a trois. <laughs> he pa- uh, Somerset passes this man a brown envelope with a list of uh, books and some money, and we and he says it'll be about an hour, and he goes. And I think Somerset, I'm sorry, Mills says, "Oh, that was a waste of time." I was like, "Mills, well, he patience. says money well spent, money well spent." Sorry, yes, money well spent. I was like, "Patience, you don't know what's happening." <laughs> and then they go and sit in a barber shop, and that's when Somerset explains like things like, "I trust you." Because I'm going to explain my, you know, my my secrets. Like who who have I got, who am I in cahoots with? And we find out that the man that he gave the money to works for the FBI, and the FBI have tabs on certain books that are checked out in libraries because some books, if you know they get checked out, they're going to flag up of like a nefarious or potential nefarious activity. So they have records of what people have checked out. And Mills is like, that's illegal. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, also true yeah um, okay, check so. this, out. this this does happen yeah i can uh, imagine um, yeah it's interesting to think about it because that you know collection of information about that that's an early form of big data i mean these days your 100%. library checkouts would be the that would be the tip of the iceberg it's like your oh internet God. browsing history absolutely and particularly you think about you know Department of Homeland Security anti-terrorism mm-hmm. measures so much monitoring of what people are accessing oh yes. um look at this um, somebody has been checking out lots of books and accessing lots of websites about mm, mixing that nitro uh, about how to make nitroglycerin oh yes. dear and yeah. so on um so, so yeah, it's the, remarkable there. to the FBI agent who's currently watching our call we are just talking about film please <laughs> please don't have us <laughs> Um, yeah, we're really not worth your time. No, it's fine. It's, if we're talking about a thirty-year-old film. We're good. Yes. So he so he says, let's just wait, and then and then he comes back in. Oh no! As they're waiting, so it has a throwaway line of like, get a haircut. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> but the man. It's also, in. I think, worth noting that um, the, the uh, Mills refers to this guy from the FBI as Stinky Man, oh my and God. he's played. Yes. by Mark Boone Jr., Yes, who is also kind of a larger gentleman. He's a larger guy. So, he, he's another guy referred to contemptuously. A hundred percent. That's a really good point. And absolutely, Mark, like Mark Boone Jr. is not as big in this film as I've known him to be in more recent stuff, but definitely is on the larger side. And again, I've, I've spoken about this at length on this podcast, but there really is a weird line that media continue to perpetuate between um uncleanliness and fatness um so you see it in bridesmaids you see it in shrek <laughs> um and and again this is again mills showing contempt for a body type um different from his own and just making these really abstract assessments based on that um i don't know but, but very odd he's obviously got like a lot of contempt for bigger people so we get the list back from this FBI agent and we get a hit. There's an address on there that looks looks to be the one and it's, it's to a John Doe. And they're like, 
what are the chances you know mm-hmm. so they go they go and they're like we're gonna just have a conversation with him he's like oh yeah just rock up and he's like a serial killer we're just gonna have a conversation with him knocking on the door and a man in like a raincoat and a hat comes up the stairs at the other end of the corridor somerset clocks it straight away and says at mills look and then that's when the guy with the hat pulls out a gun and starts shooting at them so it means that these two now have to pull out their guns does somerset also pull out his gun at this point he definitely pulls it out. Pulls it out. Uh, so... um, he doesn't. He doesn't fire it. Um, no, he doesn't. It's notable. Fire it. No, it's notable. And this is when. What's really interesting is all the way through the film, there has been this sort of sense of danger, sense mm-hmm. of threat. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's never actually been a moment up until now when Mills and Somerset have been in genuine danger. Yes. Now we get it all at once, and it is a. What's interesting is the film style shifts significantly yes. because yes. earlier on it's been very it's been a lot of steady cam there have mm-hmm. been traveling shots that slowly follow characters into rooms but here the camera goes a lot more it's a lot more handheld yes um, the cuts are much faster this is a proper this is if you like david fincher demonstrating yes actually i am a re- i am a versatile filmmaker and he's Definitely. a wonderful demonstration of you know the cinematic craft of really thrusting you the viewer into that situation mm-hmm. um and being able to follow mills as he is chasing after um doe and it's interesting that we only ever see doe in sort of silhouette in shadow yes. obscured yes. by <laughs> rain of course of course um, and right up until the point where they run through the through the various parts of the of the city and eventually you know, Mills is you know, heading along and then he gets clobbered in the head with a tire iron. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because at this point, Doe could very easily have killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we get it, we get this shot of the gun pointed against um Mills's temple. Mm-hmm. And we have this extreme close-up of the gun with um John Doe um you know, completely out of focus, so we can't see him clearly, but it's mm-hmm. but it's very tense sequence. And very good, I, yeah. I don't know if I was expecting Mills to be killed at that point, the first time I saw it. Um, but if he had mm. been, it would have been, you know, consistent. Yeah. But of course, no. No. Who no lets him live and off he, he goes. Yeah, Joe shows him mercy, which he brings up time and time again later. Mm. Um, because it's not Mills's time. Mills's place in his plan is much bigger than right now after a scuffle but it's important to note this isn't the 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 chase uh somerset and mills knowing where he lives is not part of those plan they he wasn't they weren't to find their his lair yet if at all so this really shakes john doe because there are we find out when when he sees the um the books that he's checked out it's like you know police investigation books it's you know more of the deadly sin literature so he's obviously been reading up on how police in- conduct investigations so he can be one step ahead of them what he doesn't know because it's not written anywhere because it's a secret is that the FBI track those books that are being checked out so he didn't know that this was possible that he could be traced so they really put like a spanner into into John Doe's plan, and like you say, I I just want to like echo what you're saying. The the way that cinematography shifts into this incredibly fast paced, like you feel like you're right behind Mills the entire time. It literally that's that moment when he like sprints towards the staircase as soon as it kicks off, it goes into shaky cam, mm-hmm. and it's like you're just running behind him. It's really really well done. Um, and again, like we had that running through different people's flats or houses. Uh, people again we mentioned earlier it seemed not not um 
not shocked, but also a bit like nonplussed either. It's a, it's a very odd atmosphere when he's running through these places. Again, that these houses don't have uh, much personality to them. They're quite drab, which makes sense for our setting. So again, this is this is a place with no life. There's no soul, unfortunately. Um, but it leads to, like you say, this mercy and uh, Mills has, I'm assuming, broken his arm. And so he needs to, you know, put, get that put into a sling. And they go back to the flat and Somerset's like, well, we can't go in because we haven't got a warrant. And Mills like, well, we've got just cause. You know, he's just shot at us. He's like, you know, it doesn't work like that. You know, like, if we break the law here, they could throw him out, uh, throw the case out. He could walk away, walk away free from everything. And uh, Mills just won't listen. And, and in his anger, in his wrath, kicks down the door and instantly regrets it. <laughs> I think you're like, oh, well, it's done now. We can't get annoyed at it. But he then goes <laughs> and finds a homeless person to pay off to give them a kind of like a justification of why they burst through the door to protect the case. So I thought that was really interesting. Notable. Yeah, it's notable. If all the, this is the second time we've got an instance of the police being corrupt. Corrupt. You know, Somerset, <laughs> men so Somerset mentions that the police probably himself take money from journalists yes um, yeah to, that's true they get access to crime scenes and then okay well mills does his own bit of and and, and somerset takes place in this sort of the illegal gathering of data relating to library uh checkouts and then mills says i know let's do, get a bit of false evidence falsify some evidence here so mm. you know there is no innocence here <laughs> i was going to say but but i can imagine mills and somerset both justify that corruption because it's for like the greater good it's for sure. it's it's to further the case um but again that's so subjective right like i mean it's easy to absolve yourself when you've gone but yeah it's for the greater good i'm saving lives it's like there's three people who are dead at the moment so how many lives are you saving you know well in theory four <laughs> <laughs> well yeah but we'll get into that <laughs> so they get access to john doe's apartment and what a set like it just looks so sinister and it's it's black it's dark there's no natural light above the bed is this neon crucifix there are um just shelves and shelves and shelves of these books that famously were completely written out you know front and back pages like uh we've got um trophies i guess you could say from each of the crime scenes so you find victor's hand uh, there's um, there's Im images from the other two crime scenes. I can't remember if there's actual trophies or if it's just pictures. I think it might be just pictures mm. he's taken. Mm. And then yeah. uh, Mills... Surprised he didn't take the pound of flesh. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I guess it's like a message though, isn't it? I for guess the police? leave it on the scales. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Mills finds like his dark room, so he's looking at all these uh, all these pictures he's taken and that's when he sees the picture from him on the stairs yelling at that photographer. Yep. It's a fantastic picture as well. I think it's so cool and iconic looking. I just like, oh, it's really well done. <laughs> um, and that, that's when they realise, oh, we had him. It's interesting Mill says that we had him, we had him. It's like, but you didn't because you had no idea who you had. <laughs> um, like you weren't, you didn't know who you had in that moment. Um, and then the phone rings and they, they run around looking for it. You know, Mill shouts everyone to be quiet so we can hear out for it. It's under all these clothes. And it is John Doe ringing to tell them how much he admires them for, I guess, oh, being yeah. one step ahead for, for um, 
outsmarting him because he, obviously he's the smartest person in the room, right? Uh, and they and he hangs up. Uh, Somerset's able to record it very quickly, very quick thinking from Somerset's point of view. Um, but they keep dusting for prints, and that's when one of the CSI, a woman, yay, comes in oh, and, yes. says, and says, with uh, a line. Yeah, with a line. She goes, you won't believe this, but we can't find a fingerprint anywhere. And Mill says, yeah, you're right. I don't believe you. Keep looking. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so they, But they do find a receipt for a Wild Bill's leather store. And I oh, wonder yeah. if this was a reference to Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. I think it probably is. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, when we, when it comes to, in the, in the subgenre of the serial killer thriller, uh, the serial killer film, The Silence of the Lambs and Seven tend to be, yes. you know, held up as, you know, here are the perfect examples of this subgenre. Definitely. And there are, I think, some parallels between mm-hmm. John Doe and Hannibal Lecter. They're both mm-hmm. highly intelligent um, and have a very particular view of the world. Um I think you know the main difference is Dr. Lecter is all about he he's just indulge he, he he's more honest I think he indul- he's indulging mm. himself whereas Doe appears to have um sort of more delusions of grandeur that he yes. is doing something important uh but yes I think mm. the um having this leather goods store um and you know fetish gear store yeah called Buff- called Wild Bill is is a reference to Buffalo Bill and the Silence of the Lambs now yeah. This is very this is one of those where we get into another another incredibly disturbing um part of the film where it is all in your mind because so Mills and Somerset they go to the store, they meet the proprietor who shows a photograph, a Polaroid. Mm-hmm. We don't see what's on that picture. Come to think of it, much like in the Science of the Lambs when Clary Starling is shown a photograph, a Polaroid of what Dr. Lecter did to a nurse. Yes. Oh, that's we a very good parallel. Don't... Yeah. Yeah. We don't see what's in the picture, but we know it's something that's making, in this case, Mills and Somerset go, oh my. Uh-huh. Um, and they take so they take the picture off, and there's a slight another of those sort of witty moments. Yes. As they take the picture and while Bill yells after them, hey, the picture! Yeah, yeah. Fucking, he's strangely British. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, He's like, fucking pigs. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think, and from there, we go directly to our next victim. Mm. Um, Yes, I think that's right. Next victim straight away. Yeah. Yeah, Which is in a a brothel. A brothel. Yeah. Yeah, a brothel. But here's the interesting thing, right? The police arrive at this brothel uh, we see again the proprietor mm-hmm. um essentially you know insisting to the to the arrest to the officers like no i I, don't, I haven't seen anything i've been here the whole time and we go into a room mm-hmm. one of the rooms and there is a a man there looking fairly hysterical and he has this blanket across his body and something is sticking up out of it in the position where his cock would be mm-hmm. um but he's certainly not looking happy and there is a woman on the bed and you just have a uh, you, well actually you can see a bed and you can see some feet and i think you see the word lust um, yes. on the wall yeah but fascinatingly there is a shot of the bed 
and you can see some arms and legs, but you do not see the body. Mills's body, Mills's body completely blocks mm -hmm. whatever is there. We don't know. Mm -hmm. It's clearly horrible. Um, it's another crime scene. We assume it's a dead body, but we don't get to see it. And it's interesting. We so well, not unlike, I guess, the gluttony um, crime scene. We're being given bits and pieces, but mm -hmm. we don't have the full story. We know there's a something mm -hmm. made by Wild Bill. We know this is in a brothel, so we can probably assume that there's a um, that the victim is a prostitute, mm -hmm. and we can and we know that there's some thing under a blanket and something being blocked. And it's not until we get to the police interrogation, sorry, interview rooms, where we actually finally see mm. the Polaroid. Mm -hmm. um, now, quick point on this. A um, friend of mine who um, absolutely loves Seven, he calls it like his favourite film ever. For a long time, he'd only seen a TV edit. And in the TV edit, okay. that you never actually see the Polaroid. Oh, oh my God. Okay. So what yeah. did he think then? What well, was his interpretation? His interpret well, because the, because the dialogue refers to this thing, because mm. um, what we see in the Polaroid mm -hmm. is that this is a, essentially it is a strap-on mm -hmm. dildo with a knife blade. Yeah. So as soon as you see that and you realise, wait, so that sort of goes on the guy. Mm. And, oh, no, no, mm. no, no, no. And your mind just does not want to go there. No. Because it goes there anywhere. And you have the guy saying, so he came in, um, he he uh, he he put that thing on me and he put the gun in my he 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 put the gun in my mouth. Fuck the mm -hmm. the, the fucking gun was in my throat. He mm -hmm. he made me fuck her. Oh god, <laughs> oh god. Um so it is, yeah. I mean, the man is understandably hysterical. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine. Right. So it was this. So he strapped a, a knife on the guy and then made him fuck this um, sex worker to death. Yeah. That is so fucked up. Oh, it's, it's awful. It yeah. truly is. You don't. I I appreciate. Like, don't show us the the aftermath. I really, 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 really do. Um, I do query whether if they did, whether they would have even got a rating because it just seems so obscene. Um, but I think you don't need to see it because just the idea alone literally just makes you want to gag. I, I, it's it's one of the worst deaths I think in in film, like truly. And yeah. I think the the guy who plays the John, he he's amazing. Like I fully believe everything he's saying. His 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 hysteria is so palpable. Um. But what I wanted to ask is, this is the first time John Doe has brought in a an accomplice into into one of these murders, and I want to know who is the real victim of lust. Ah, good point. Um, well, in one respect, you could say, well, it is the dead person. It is yeah. the sex worker. She mm -hmm. is the one who has been very you know, brutally murdered. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess you could almost say that the the John, the guy who had the strap on, mm -hmm. is almost like a bonus victim mm -hmm. um, for from Doe's perspective. However, 
Um, I think it's also, again, it's the uncomfortable, um, probably unintentional, but nonetheless problematic um, misogyny at work here that the sex worker is not given any identity. As I said nope. before, we don't learn her name. Mm -mm. Um, and the emphasis is upon the hysterical man. Um, yes. His life is probably completely ruined. He will be, he'll be in therapy the rest of his life. Um, yeah. uh, and so, and our emphasis is upon him. And I think um, you probably heard of um, the a phrase by the great film critic, Roger Ebert, who described mm -hmm. cinema as an empathy machine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so the question in this sequence is who are we we are being invited to empathize with the john not the not the, the sex worker yes he's the one that we are invited to feel very sympathetic towards and you know as you say and it's and it works um his panic his terror now on the one hand that is kind of problematic because it's kind of saying this man's hysteria is what we're invited to look at rather than the violent death of a woman. Having said that, it perhaps is that necessary almost mediation because the death mm. of the sex worker is so incredibly horrific mm -hmm. that perhaps we would it would be really difficult to get past that, mm -hmm. to get not just get past the sheer brutality, the sheer gruesomeness. And perhaps if Maybe we just sort of, if we'd only seen the John there and then we hadn't seen him again and it'd just been another discussion in the precinct between them. So he must, so he tied, and maybe one of them relaying what happened. Some are saying, well, according to the John, he, John Doe strapped the guy down. Yes. And then tied the girl down, strapped the thing on him, and then he made him do it. Mm -hmm. um, then our attention would have been upon the sex workers as a yes. victim. But yes. perhaps it would have, but maybe the way our minds work, it would have been so extreme, we wouldn't have mm -hmm. been able to get past that extremity. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the hysterical John is us. He's putting us into that. Mm -hmm. The idea of us being thought about, because, you know, <laughs> in a, well, and I suppose this is part of one of the points of the film, because the film is very much um, about sin, about mm -hmm. the pervasive, all all-consuming power of sin i'll refer again to richard dyer's yeah. book about the film where he talks about he actually discusses it in relation to sin throughout and i think maybe that's sort of it's kind of inviting an almost a culpability mm -hmm. in terms of who is the who is the sinner here i mean the john he's the guy who's actually following his lust yes the sex worker was the one profiting from it now one yes. could argue well they're both you know guilty of lust one exploiting it the other indulging it so um mm -hmm. in that respect you could say they are both equally victims but i wonder if there is actually a way of this is the way the film is kind of working to implicate the viewer because most of this is also extreme and the death of the a sex worker is so extreme that we can mm -hmm. feel a certain distance from it all. Mm -hmm. But to focus on somebody who's left behind, mm. who's, you know, saying, oh, God, oh, God, please help me. Um, maybe that's kind of the, maybe it's getting us to engage with that. And the fact that we probably think about that death. Oh, God, oh, God, this is so terrible. This is so horrendous. Help me. Mm. Um, that it's almost putting us in there. I often think about films that their best work not so much not just to express something but to envelop you to bring uh -huh. you into it and i think seven is incredibly atmospheric 
-hmm. And part of that atmosphere is to bring the viewer in. And perhaps this is a particularly um, pronounced instance Mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. People may be listening and saying like, yeah, you're pushing this. I'm not I'm not buying it. But that's probably because I'm just coming up with this as I'm talking. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate but does, that. But it is a uh, yeah, it is a it's an it's a difficult scene to unpick. I yes. Think. I just to add to that, I've always interpreted it that the sex worker is collateral damage and the true victim is the John. And the reason why is because in real life, sex workers' deaths are not taken seriously. They um, are often not given the time of day. It's almost because, oh, well, if you're a sex worker or say, you know, your line of work means you have to work on the streets, well, you were asking for it. Well, you know, it's a dangerous line of work. What did you expect? And where, where you have the, I guess, the brothel owner or manager who's being interviewed by, is it Mills in the other yeah. room? Yeah. yeah. Um, he's so like everyone brings in things guys like people bring in suitcases this very like it's not my responsibility to be like checking everyone's bags if someone brings a knife and someone's going to bring a knife and if someone wants to hurt these girls someone's going to hurt these girls like it's very nonchalant and it very tellingly um mill says do you even like your job and the guy goes no of course he doesn't it's not a nice place to be but you know he needs the money and i think Again, a lot of people who are in sex work do it because they need the money, you know, and it's not a choice or they could be exploited. You know, sex trafficking is very much a thing. And you query, like, is it a, is it a, a cinematic choice? Is it a narrative choice to make this victim in this point a sex worker who is, you know, it, again, um, there's a real push to move away from the term prostitute to sex worker because throughout the years, the term prostitute brings very little empathy. In fact, it probably brings judgment. So the so if we move to sex worker, give them more agency, give them this idea that they are like, you know, in work. You know, it's not it's not a um it's not a personality trait, it's a job. Uh and again it, think about how many Jane Doe sex workers there have been in in various you know true crime stories um and when I when I watch this scene I just can't help but relate it to to real life and again I'd have to ask David Fincher or or um sorry what's the writer called Andrew Andrew Kevin Walker Kevin Walker thank you Andrew Kevin Walker what his what his intention was for that scene um because that's that's how I've how I've always read it so yeah, I think it's I think it is an interesting one to unpack. I will years later. A, yeah, I will give a recommendation for mm-hmm. um a from a movie that takes a very interesting um look at sex workers and is indeed based on sex worker experiences. It's a mm. film called At Zola. At Zola. Yep. Z O L A. Yep. Okay, um, cool. But with the at symbol at the start. Ah, uh, okay. Because it was a film based on a Twitter thread. So um yeah, here at uh, where I work at uh, Lancaster University, where we have a center for gender studies, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we hold feminist movie uh, nights. And um, earlier this year, one of the films, we, the film we showed was At Zola, uh, which is uh, yeah, very interesting yeah. Um, portrayal of the sex worker experience based on the actual experiences of a sex worker. Oh, so, that sounds really interesting. For an alternative view, I yes, a hundred percent. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. So. That is lust. I keep uh, mixing these up, actually. Whenever I... I always have to go back to film and check. Oh, no. I keep thinking pride comes before lust. But no, mm. lust 
then pride yes we we uh, have this scene with with M- mills and somerset in the bar and that's when we have that apathy conversation and we really get an understanding of why mills is doing what he's doing because you know he has to believe in in something he's got to be believing he's doing it for the greater good um and he won't just blindly agree with somerset to make himself feel better that he's leaving leaving when he actually doesn't truly want to be leaving hmm yeah um in the very first scene before the credits when they first meet um somerset does say and mills i thought we might find a bar somewhere and finally they do they do that's a really good point yeah full circle moment (laughs) indeed and it is again it's a demonstration of their bonding here they are properly like hanging out as um this goes uh and what's interesting is they i think the antagonism that there's been Mm. between them has largely gone they are now a lot more i don't know if they're friends but Mm. they are now partners and they can they're on the same they're on each other's they get each other's wavelength even though they disagree Mm -hmm. mills is still able to say as he leaves he says thank you though Mm -hmm. And yeah. he appreciates what Somerset is trying to do, 100%. even if he doesn't agree with him. It's an interesting, it's a buddy cop moment. It's also, a, it's a mentor moment. Mm. We're back on The Empire Strikes Back again. It's, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you could almost have had Somerset saying, listen to heart, must you? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and Mills is like, no, no, I, I need to go save my friends. It's, yeah, there is a sort of weird parallel there. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. But notably, we do see a further sort of cracking because Mills goes home and hugs mm-hmm. his wife. Says, I love Somerset you. Somerset mm-hmm. goes home. Somerset can't sleep. Mm-hmm. We've seen him putting himself to sleep with the metronome mm-hmm. and he smashes the metronome and instead mm-hmm. tries throwing his switch, throwing his switchblade at his yes. dartboard. Yes. It's a good shot, actually. It was. Um, I thought that. Yeah. So it's a clear demonstration that all of this is getting to Somerset. Yes, definitely. Definitely, I think like again, the metronome is to help him like focus on that rather than the noise outside of this like sirens, the screaming, the the chaos which is the city. And then all of a sudden, he's like, no, he actually kind of needs to be immersed in it in this moment because he's still here, he's still living in this city, he's still trying to save this city in this moment. Um, we get to Sunday, a day of rest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, so we find that we've got um, our victim of pride. You mentioned earlier that we do know that this is someone that John Doe might have known. I Who... got the impression that this that the pride victim was a model. Ah, uh, okay. Because again, like we don't get a name, unfortunately, for this person. Uh, we see a face, but it's on a on a big portrait that's kind of been fallen down off the bed, and she's covered in bandages. And in one hand, she's had a bottle of sleeping pills glued to her hand on the other is a phone and basically it's either you could call for help um or you could kill yourself via these sleeping pills because john doe has cut off her nose to spite her face yay comedy duo um yeah and so she has decided to take the pills and it's again i find that very interesting there's a little, i can't remember if there's any like dismissiveness on this because i can imagine there might have been because of like the vanity of it all uh but we don't know her name and i guess her only her only reason for being a victim is that she is a model and i guess has gained fame fortune because of her looks and that's enough to be on john doe's list at this point 
Well, I think it may not even be that. It seems it could be more basic in a matter of here is somebody who has taken pride in their in her appearance. She has made herself into a figure of beauty that yeah. is taking pride. Um, yeah. How dare she? How dare she? Yeah, like, oh, okay. I don't know. It just seems like, I mean, I know a lot of these are like, some of them are so like obvious in their motives and some of them are so you're clutching at straws here john like is there no one else more you know deserving of this gruesome murder no apparently not it has to be this poor woman and again we do not see his work here it's it is all to the imagination mm -hmm. yeah um it's always the aftermath it's it's the crime scenes of what we see yes yeah i think that's a very where uh i guess like famously saw saw fills in the gaps because <laughs> <laughs> even even when they do to the crime, go to the crime scenes for jigsaw they they have those kind of like music video shot edits of what happened before they became the corpse so mm. yeah they, they really do fill in the gaps so that's pride and then we get to the precinct you know somerset and mills are you know chatting shit walking through and john doe or the back of john doe has walked into the precinct um, and we can see that his he's covered in blood. There's blood spatters on him, and he's got bandages on his fingertips. And you know, we hear detectives, detectives, detectives. <laughs> it's so loud. <laughs> You're looking for me. Yes, and and it is. I mean, I guess it wasn't advertised at the time, but it is Kevin Spacey in this role, and it's the first thing we get to see him as the audience and. Uh, Mills straight away pulls out his gun. Somerset, he, you know, Somerset looks startled, right? He's like, again, I, I can imagine he's, his his cogs are turning. Why, why would he come in? Why would he hand himself in at this moment? What's going on? What's the next? What's the next step of this plan? Because he can't be just turning himself in. Something else must be happening here. And so they arrest him and they put him into uh, an interview room where he gets to meet with his, he asks for his lawyer. Um, is it Robert Schiff? Is that his name? The lawyer. Uh, he's from Jurassic Park, The Lost World. <laughs> oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that guy. And uh, so, yeah, and we could see that we can't hear the conversation, um, but we can see, and obviously so often John Doe looks towards the two-way, uh, the one-way, two-way mirror. Um, and, uh, He's obviously saying things and uh, I guess, you know, explaining he's confessing, right? He is confessing. He is, he is turned himself in and the captain, I think he, he kind of dismisses it going, Hey, you, you got your guy. Great work. And, and uh, Mill says, no, this can't be it. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right. And Somerset says for the first time ever, I completely agree with you. Indeed. Yeah. It's um, the, yeah, Mills describes it as um, this guy is laugh is pissing in our faces and we're taking it like idiots um, <laughs> and so on. That there is there is so much more going on here. Um, I, oddly, I thought this line was in the film, but it may only be in the trailer. Okay. Um, that Somerset says he's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. <gasps> no, I think he does say that in the film. I think I heard that earlier. Okay, fair enough. Well, yes. it, point being, it makes, but it, that is the point at which. And what's fascinating is we mm -hmm. viewers are in the same position because mm -hmm. all the way through, we've been following these detectives saying, okay, how are they going to catch the guy? How are they going to mm -hmm. catch the guy? And mm -hmm. it's like, wait, hang on. The guy has just walked in. Now, I remember reading an anecdote about this when David Fincher was reading the script. Mm. He got to that point, was like, wait a minute. That's like big, 
there's a big part of the script left, a good 30 odd pages left um, in you know, screenwriting parlance. I think well, one minute is roughly e- one page is roughly equal to a minute of screen time. Yes. So he was like, the killer's just given himself up. How mm. is this the ending? What more is there to come? And we are, of course, thinking the same thing. Mm. And of course, yeah. John Doe's meticulous planning continues. Mm. Yes. So his meticulous planning has led him to the precinct where he has agreed or he has proposed a few deals. So he has said um, there are two bodies left. So we've got two sins left, right? We've got wrath and we've got envy. So we've got mm-hmm. two more victims to come. Um, he says, okay, so uh, either he, he, he wants to show Mills and Somerset where those bodies are at 6 p.m. this evening. And after we've done that, he will go, you know, he'll plead guilty and go willingly to jail or he will fight and plead not guilty. Oh, no, he'll he'll plead insanity. And the lawyer says, and, you know, I'll get him off with that. Yeah. I find, So in this, we've got the captain, we've got Somerset Mills, and we also have the DA that we've briefly seen earlier in the film. Played by Richard Roundtree, um, who became famous for playing Shaft. Oh my, I had no idea. There you go. There you go. Yeah, so it's interesting because I, I think, is it the DA or the captain says, well, I've got half a mind to let those two bodies rot. It's the DA who says it's that. It's the DA. And it's just like, like where's your empathy? <laughs> like, well, these poor victims, these families, you know, obviously because they don't know what's coming. Like these these families have got people that they would want to bury. And again, the the lawyer mentions that like well the media would have a field day if they heard you say that you know that you don't care enough to find these two last victims and the captain then says to somerset and mills because again they're very curious right curiosity killed the cat they're like we've got to end this you know and the captain says it's your call it's your case do detectives get a say in whether they accept the plea deals or not well i think it's you know not worth <laughs> Worrying about, is this what would happen in reality? No, this is <laughs> it, it, this is a fiction. It is an art. It is a film. It is an artifice. What will happen will happen because what works dramatically. <laughs> Do the detectives get to decide this? No, but Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman get to decide yeah, it because they they're the stars. Because <laughs> they, they are the protagonists. Yes. They will determine this. Um so in that, I think in that respect, that's it. It makes dramatic sense that they yeah. do that. No, you're totally um, right. I think, and, and again, but it's interesting. You mentioned the phrase "curiosity killed the cat." I would mm-hmm. suggest it's also suggesting a sense of um, fatal curiosity as a sin. It's almost like their <sighs> own their willingness to see how this plays out, and of course hours as the mm-hmm. viewers mm-hmm. we want to see how this plays out imagine how unsatisfied we'd all be if they'd said no nah, fine lock him up whatever that's it you're it that. so right like as an audience member you're also like hungry for like resolution you're hungry for revenge vengeance whatever you're hungry like to like you know close the story off there are two more bodies we need to know and again like the film is set up that every death has been this spectacular um gruesome affair even though we haven't seen it we know it and so it's like well we you know the climax is going to be a big one right we can't not see that so yeah you're totally right as an audience member we are also we are also guilty of you know being too curious being too um bloodthirsty (laughs) right um Uh, it's worth noting that of course i mean this film does close itself off 
it has a very even though the ending is devastating it is still neat it is tied off and it's notable that 12 years later Mm -hmm. david fincher would make another serial killer Mm -hmm. film which famous in the form of zodiac yes which has no resolution no no Um, and it's interesting that um that it was something that he could return to but in a very different way yeah and i think zodiac works in a different way oh yeah i really like zodiac Um, really like zodiac yeah it might yeah it's it's another stunning film um but interestingly does not have that resolution that we want i remember i was watching zodiac one time with somebody who didn't know about anything about it and said oh, okay. so so when do they catch him and i'm like they don't never they don't. No. zodiac yeah. killer never found yeah oh and it would be and in the case of zodiac because that's based on you know real events it's able to turn that lack of knowledge into a satisfying conclusion mm-hmm. in the case of seven the structure is so you know this is there's, there's a clue in the title. We want our last two victims. And indeed, we have the same fatal sin of curiosity yes. as Mills and Somerset. Definitely. Definitely. So we agree. We're gonna. That's what we're going to do. We're going to drive out into the middle of absolutely nowhere, out of the city, most importantly. Um, Bear in mind, to, now it's sunny. I was going to say, the weather has completely changed. We have clear skies. It's It's sunny. It's dry. Um, and so we're going into the into the middle of nowhere. Um, it's summer Somerset and Anne Mills, and then John Doe in one car, and then you've got the SWAT and the helicopters tracking them. They've got microphones on, and they have a really nice little, again like buddy cop moment where they're shaving their chest mm-hmm. here for the for the the microphones to stick on. And it's like, what what would if I would I get workers comp if I shaved off my nipple? <laughs> <laughs> it's well, really- if you put in a claim, I'd buy you one. Yeah, no, he says something. If you're brave enough to like put in a claim, I could pay you out of my own pocket. It's um, yeah, it's a really lovely scene. Again, it's another laughing scene, um, and they get in the car, and again, it's very interesting. But Mills is still so dismissive of John Doe, bearing yep. in mind they have been run around the city. They have currently five dead bodies. This man clearly has not done yet there's still two more bodies unaccounted for and Mills is just like so dismissive so like condescending patronizing towards John Doe and then that's when we get the like you know uh you've you've killed innocent people and John Doe takes such offense to this he's like innocent and it's you probably know the quote I'm gonna let you do it uh, well, the the end, the end, this finale of it is mm-hmm. only in a world this shitty. Yes, could you say these were innocent people and keep a straight face. Keep a straight face. Yes, because he says it's laughable. Uh, yeah, and this is after he's you know described the vic- the five victims so far. Yeah, um, you know, so- saying that a man's so obese that he would gonna- make you sick. The lawyer exactly. Keeping- uh, off the streets, I'm um, a drug dealing pederast. Yes. Notably, I think I must uh, disagree with your point earlier. I think mm. that the sex worker <gasps> is, is the victim be- because yes. he says the disease spreading whore. He do- oh god, yes, he does say the disease spreading whore. What an awful thing to say. I mean, I know John Doe's awful, but oh my god, he's awful in that moment. Yes. He's but not yeah, very you're creative right. in that. It's, I mean, and it's disappointing. Like, come on, John, you're more creative than that. Yes. And then it's and he's, as he demonstrates, a woman so ugly. On the inside, inside, she couldn't get to. She couldn't bear to go on living if she was wasn't beautiful on the outside. I think it's really yeah. telling as well that, like you know, he starts off this explanation with maybe around four or five lines describing 
his repulsion towards gluttony but then they end up just being one lines for the rest so like for example mm. the two female victims literally get one line um of an explanation and I, again i don't know whether that's on purposefully misogynistic or whether that is um just because like narratively it makes sense you kind of like you know go big and then go smaller and more concise as you rant continues uh but i thought it was very telling that again you know coming back to the fact that the three victims that we don't know their names of are um the fat person who is ridiculed and mocked by almost everybody within the film and then our two female characters one being a sex worker completely dismissed and then the other i mean i, I yeah we are sh- assuming she's a model but she gets very little screen time because at this point in the film we're like ramping up to the final we're right ramping up to the climax so it's like it's a, they're like victims of the film's runtime as well we're like pride oh we got to just get pride out the way and then we've got to move on to the next one yeah yes and bear in mind seven is not a it's not a particularly short film it's just no. over two hours so it, but, and notably though the pacing of it works throughout it takes its yes, time yes. early on i think um, the pacing's fantastic yeah exactly that the pacing really really does hit so well for me personally and i guess like pacing is quite a subjective thing but for me it really really does work so we get to the the location that john Doe wants us to get to and they let him out and they're like exploring and there's a dead dog. And he goes, well, I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, That's yeah. a great line. Love that. Um, there's and a what train. time is it? Yes, it's 7.01. It's 7.01. Mm-hmm. There is a trailer here and it looks to have like a banner on it. Could you make out what the banner said? Oh, I was looking for that. No, um, I couldn't quite make it out. I couldn't see it either. I don't know whether it's anything more to do with, I don't know, sins of some kind. (laughs) Um, And there looks to be a van is barreling down towards this access road. And so Somerset's like, oh, I'm going to go meet them because it might be, you know, there's a fear that it's an ambush. Like they genuinely don't know what they've walked into. So Somerset goes off and that's when that's when John Doe says that he's like, says to Mills, oh, I'm so glad we've got some time to talk to each other. And in that we find that he says, I'm not lying when I said I admired you. You've been able to curate such an ordinary or normal life for yourself. And then he says about meeting Tracy. I went round to your house or your apartment this morning and met your wife, Tracy. And that's, it's interesting because Mills, again, is being very dismissive in this moment, going like, oh, you know, shut up, shut up, because he's focusing on what Somerset's doing up with the van. And it's only when he mentions Tracy does he turn around and actually start listening to what he's saying, because all of a sudden it's very sinister. What'd Uh, you fucking say? Yeah. (laughs) And as as an audience, we're like, oh no, like, (laughs) what's happened? What's going Mm -hmm. on? Um, and then Somerset's made it to the the van. It's a delivery driver, and he said, like, oh, I was paid five hundred bucks to drop at this location at this time at seven. Um, so he gets the he gets the box. He tells the the van driver to leave on foot, um, and he opens it. And again, as an audience, we don't see. He we hear there's blood, and then he steps back and gasps while we're hearing. Uh, we're hearing John Doe speak to Mills about his wife and how he tried to play house with his wife. Um, and then when she didn't take too kindly to it, he got annoyed or angry. He just says, so I took a souvenir. Oh, I took a souvenir. That's Her it. Her pretty head. Her pretty head. 
And at that point, that's when Somerset realized, you know, he says to California, um, keep, keep, well, regardless of what you hear, keep out of here. Um, John Doe has the upper hand. He's running towards Mills and John Doe going like, throw your gun away, throw your gun away. And, and we get another instance of um, shaky cam at that point, the camera following behind Somerset as he's running towards them, which Good I think point. is a way of indicating the, okay, everything is completely going to shit now. Yeah, it was absolute panic. Yeah. And uh, again, we have this, you know, what's in the box? What's in the box? Very, very glorious. And uh, he says, I was envious. I'm envious of your life. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying like, I'm... So this is the bit I, I really wanted to challenge here. So throughout the film up until this point, and I, I would have put lust into this, but John does make it clear that his lust victim is the sex worker. The victims of the deadly sins have been people who've perpetuated the sin themselves. And this is when it shifts to actually they're the victims of someone who is committing the sin. So Tracy is the victim of John Doe because John Doe is the envious one. Um, okay, interesting. Tracy, I bizarrely, isn't a victim of sin she mm-hmm. is and she is a truly innocent victim right um so yeah if we want to challenge john doe that's what we challenge him on it's like hang on you did kill an innocent person yeah um motherfucker yeah. Uh, you or should i say mother deheader um <laughs> deheader um yeah because the the victims of the sins are our you know, obese man, our mm-hmm. lawyer, our you know, drug dealer, mm-hmm. sex worker, model, mm-hmm. and then Doe himself mm-hmm. and Mills. So, so, but Mills Tracy is almost collateral damage. Yes. Well, so this is this is my point. So, if if like if I follow my thought through, so if not that not that I say Tracy is the is the victim of. No, she is the thing is that's the thing. She is the victim of envy, but she herself is not um the perpetrator of the envy. And then and then Mills is the one who enacts the sin of wrath to murder John Doe. Right. So well, we en- so we hmm. end up with seven bodies. Yes. But are we saying there's eight victims? Well, you could say there are nine ten victims, actually. Because you could also include the John. The John, who, yeah. And you could also include Tracy's unborn baby. Ah, <gasps> Tracy's unborn And that's the thing, because he says that, he says, like, oh, and her baby. And he goes, oh, she hadn't told you yet. Yes. And he takes such pleasure in knowing he's the one who breaks to her. And the score at that moment is... Oh, yeah. It's a bah, bah, bah. It was like, oh my god, like it really is a earth shattering moment. And again, like Brad Pitt is so good in this moment. There's that, like, he's obviously pointing the gun um at John Doe and he keeps he, he keeps on like, you know, like you can see it. He's like, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. And then he like kind of gives up and he looks away like as he's trying to like hyperventilate or like, you know, trying to catch his breath and he does it again. And I don't know, it's just something really um human, actually. I, f- mm. I feel really human in that moment. Um, and then ultimately he he lets his wrath out. And yeah. it's not just one shot, it's the entire thing, isn't it? It's like you know, bam, bam, bang, bang. Magazine, yeah. thank you. <laughs> he empties <laughs> his gun into 
into no. him. Yeah, unnecessarily. The first bullet was through his head. Oh no! Yeah, he he was down, wasn't he? But it is it is pure wrath, fury. It's um, it's revenge. It's it, yeah. He he really does completely give himself over to that sin, and Somerset just watches um there's nothing he could do there's nothing he could say he tried to say you know it's it's done and then we cut to nighttime and he's being put into it this is mills he's being put into a police car and the captain says um we'll we'll take good care of him and somerset says anything he needs mm. and he goes oh uh where, where are you gonna go now and he says i'll be around so where is it around and Somerset kind of walks off into the distance, um, and, and and then it cuts to black. Well, we get the final voiceover moment. Um, <gasps> Somerset... Oh my god, I'm so sorry for about the voiceover moment. Yes, yeah, yes. I mean, we love a Morgan Freeman voiceover. Yeah, um, yeah. and he has the final line. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, mm-hmm. "The world is a good place and worth fighting for." I agree with the second part. Yes, which is a wonderful summation of the film as a whole. The world is not good. The world is very clearly very bad. But this is why, you know, when I did my master's dissertation, I did say there was this spark of redemption there mm. in that, you know, there is some, because Somerset was ready to give up. Yes, yeah. But come this finale, it suggests, well, no, he isn't. Mm-hmm. It's still worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to think about, because um, Mills, okay, he's obviously not dead, um, but I mean, his life is ruined. I'm sure his career's over. I know. Um, he's, I mean, like the uh, the John from early, he's going to be in therapy the rest of his life. Maybe the yeah. two of them can can be in a. <laughs> it's like at the end of the Dark Knight, he'll be in a padded cell forever. <laughs> Maybe we can share one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so certainly, um, the the murder of Tracy is outside of the purview mm. of the Seven Sins, um, but. Mills, certainly we have another life ruined in the form yeah. of Mills. Um, yeah. Do you know about the alternative endings? No, I do not. Please okay. enlighten. Sure thing. Right. When David Fincher was originally sent the script for Seven, um, he read it through. It was the script that we eventually saw on screen. Mm-hmm. And he was like, wow, that's amazing. Turned out he'd been sent the wrong script. I had heard that because yes. he's been, you know, not well liked after Alien 3. And I really like Alien 3. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, so he'd been sent the wrong, the, the wrong version of the script. That was mm-hmm. Kevin Walker, Andrew Kevin Walker's original version. Mm-hmm. But the studio had seen that and were like, that is too dark an ending. Give <laughs> us something a bit more optimistic. And there yes. were a couple of different versions, one of which was, Mills and Somerset getting notification from Tracy and rushing to save her. Um, and But the ending that was actually storyboard, and again, this is one of the extras on the DVD, um, is you've got Mills and Somerset. So, you know, it happens as it happens up to the point of like, is Mills going to shoot Doe or not? And then Somerset shot Mills, shot um, Doe. Somerset shot Doe. And I think the line was, Mills asks, what are you doing? And Somerset's like, I'm retiring. Yeah. So in that respect, a more optimistic ending. And he and takes he takes the bullet in yes. that sense. Yeah. 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 Um, so and therefore John Doe's masterpiece is not completed. So oh. that's what the studio, Art Linson was a producer, I think. That's what they wanted to go with. Brad Pitt 
wanted the darker ending and he mm. was the only one with the right sort of with enough clout because he's you know the biggest star of it sure and he said no we stick with the darker ending which was what fincher wanted i don't mm-hmm. know what morgan freeman wanted but because pitt supported fincher to go with the original ending that's why we get the ending that we got and uh, bravo yeah bravo. i agree i would agree. we still be talking about seven in quite the same with quite the same awe and reverence nearly yeah. 30 years later if yeah. it hadn't had such a gut punch of a finale exactly that i think like it it wouldn't have this it definitely wouldn't have the same legacy um because part the part of the whole film is this idea that ends in such a sad place like you know losing tracy losing mills you know these these people who like you know definitely tracy more than mills where tracy is the light and then mills is trying to do the right thing you know he wants to make the world a better place he's still got that spirit's not been knocked out of him the same way it's been knocked out of somerset and it's it is hopelessness it is absolute mm-hmm. hopelessness and yes okay we do have the light of somerset being there he's going to stick around he's not gonna he's not gonna run away just yet but you know he's also getting on he does deserve retirement at some point yeah <laughs> you know um yeah it is i'm glad it i'm glad from a cinematic point of view it is what it is because it it really does hit in a way that I think very few films are brave enough to do and especially mm. films of this like level of like Hollywood status, you know, mainstream, mainstream, exactly that mainstream, Um, you know, David, especially it's about David Fincher coming back from like, you know, quote unquote, a dud. I disagree, but box officely, yeah, a dud, you know, being brave enough to be like, no, and I'm going to go against the studio again and do something, um, you know, darker, more twisted in an already dark and twisty film. Uh, yeah, I think I think completely echo your bravo. I think I'm really glad they stuck to their guns on it. Mm. Yeah. So we've come to the end of seven. We have our victims. We have Mills in a car going to some kind of prison, I'm assuming. Um, God bless him. And a- after all of that, and after everything we've talked about, and we've, you know, we, I know we've talked at length. I mean, this is going to be a long episode. Is there anything else that we have missed that you want to like add some focus to? Yeah. Seven, like The Silence of the Lambs, falls mm. into a debate over whether it is a horror film or whether yes. it's a thriller. Very good question. Yeah. Now, I am interested. What do you, how do you regard it? Hmm. I think it's, both and I know it's such a cop out to say but like the two are so aligned anyway like thriller and horror really do like you know rub each other's shoulders in the in the genre pile I my nervousness is is that when a when a film wants to uh market itself as more mainstream they'll call it a thriller because that's just seeming as more appealing it people really recoil at the word horror because they especially nowadays even now even though we're 20 years removed people think of like the torture porn years and i'm just like it's it's more than that you know i always say i always say other genres wish they had the same scope of field that horror does because horror can really tackle anything and any issue or any you know any um story through through the lens of horror uh but with this Obviously, the acts, uh, the murders, the um, the tension is very horror, horror-like. But I think 
because we don't actually see anything, I'm not saying you should see something for it to be horror, but it is a very conscious decision that we don't see anything. Um, I think that's why it retains that thriller aspect. And it is the same with The Silence of the Lambs. There isn't that, I guess, the biggest gruesome part of that film will be when Hannibal Lecter... Oh, spoilers for Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Another 30-year-old film. But the, the most gruesome part is when Hannibal Lecter breaks out of his cell mm-hmm. and he goes after those two um, cops. That's def- that is, that's probably more gruesome, like physically violent, than we see anything in, in Seven. Uh, yeah, agreed. Yeah. And yet, like, I think... I think I think it's both. I think it's both. Can it be both? Can I cop out and say both? If you like. <laughs> I I won't cop out. Okay, um, no, you do you. I will say I don't think Seven is a horror film. Okay. I think it's horror adjacent and has many mm. horror elements. Um, but I have I have a definition of horror, which is that horror is about the expression of victimhood. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, as you, you said, you don't need to see things for it to be horror, but mm. we don't see anything in the Blair Witch Project, and I'm pretty sure we would all consider that a horror film. 100% one of my faves. Now, in the case of The Silence of the Lambs, the status of the victim is actually on screen, both in the case of Catherine Martin yeah. and I think Clary Starling is also consistently victimised. Yeah. In the case of Seven, the... While both films have the detective procedural element, mm-hmm. um, Seven does not have the emphasis of the expression of victimization. Mm. Everything we see of the victims is the aftermath. It mm-hmm. is, every crime, every, every um, yeah, every horrific act is a crime scene for detectives to deal with. So mm. I work on that basis that Seven works as a thriller because mm-hmm. it is its emphasis is upon the detection purely mm-hmm. and the victimization is not there mm. with one really interesting exception which i realized mm. on this recent viewing who is the one victim we see die john doe and talking about when mills is emptying his gun into mm. doe we get a point of view shot we, are <gasps> we placed. Do. yeah so the whole idea of being implicated within the sin of the film, it is there at the very end. It's similar to um, uh, uh, the death of the villain in Avatar, you know, very different film. Very. But similarly, the fi- we get this, a point of view shot of the villain as an arrow is rushing towards him. Mm. And in the case of Seven, we get, I think actually it's after those already dead, but we're still getting a point of view from his perspective. Mm. So if there, so there's a horror inflections throughout the film. There's plenty of horrific moments, but the only true moment of victimhood is that mm-hmm. of the self, almost self-inflicted victim of envy. Mm. Um, so once again, it is very much a film that is. So I don't think it's a horror film. I think it's a horror adjacent film. Yeah, um, that is ultimately a detective thriller. But it is most certainly a film that plays around with genre, with mm-hmm. convention, with and with audience um, engagement. Yes, agreed. I have another question. You reminded me. So, 
John Doe's plan has obviously been in the works for at least a year, if we take Mm. into account sloth. How does Mills and Somerset play into that plan? Did John, because obviously Mills is new. He's a not a rookie to the job, but a rookie to the city. Mm-hmm. He's only there literally a day when we go into Monday. How did John Doe, like, how does that affect John Doe's plan? Because obviously Mills plays such an integral part to his masterpiece at the end. Ah, well, notably, of course, I, okay, in the initial setup, I would say Doe committed his his murders obviously include you know, the planned ones yes were obviously um gluttony greed sloth um lust mm-hmm. probably most likely pride mm-hmm. as well those were probably all pre-identified victims yes but when yes. he phones them when they're yeah. in his apartment he says i'm gonna have to mix up my plans a bit and that mm. now he's already by that point photographed mills and mm-hmm. seen oh that guy gets angry Mm. he's wrathful that's handy he may have had a different victim uh, for wrath planned previously but and envy uh, yeah and envy as well yeah yeah um so yeah i mean (laughs) john doe's plans i think are not as uh meticulous well his planning is meticulous his motives are not as clear-cut as he would like us all to think definitely um and it's notable that although the film has a very you know, organized structure, it also doesn't fit into that perfectly because, again, mm. we don't get one murder a day. No, um, we don't. No. No victim on Wednesday, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would say what's interesting is <laughs> John Doe is not, he is uh, meticulous, exacting, and patient. He's also adaptable. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and he does mention it's remarkable what a member of the press can. Can bribe information, get information out of the police. He was able to get Mills's address from that. So when he, his when he was cut off from his home, from his funds, he had to improvise, and you know that's what he did. And his improvisation was to make Mills his victim of wrath. And then at some point, he probably thought maybe it was before, maybe it was after he visited. It's probably before he visited Tracy. Um, he thought. Oh, and, and envy? Wait. Detective Mills has this normal life. I envy that. Yeah, I'll do. <laughs> no, I'll do. I know, I know. Yeah, it does feel very um rushed, but it you're right, the the story is set up that it does make sense because all of a sudden he knows that he's at they're actually on his tail a lot quicker than than he expected. I guess then on that, was he always intending to die as part of this plan? Maybe, yeah, maybe he was. Perhaps there was another family that he envied. He was stalking, yeah. That he was planning to use, and then he had to put the Mills family in instead. Yeah. Um, because to set it up in that way, he, mm-hmm. um, yeah, had he, you know, gone to prison or you know, or even gone on trial and pled and pled, um, insanity, it wouldn't have been enough it wouldn't have been complete he needed all seven victims yeah and he could and by setting it up in such a way yeah he probably would have always planned to make someone so angry they killed him 
yeah i it makes yeah. sense i can't he, I mean, again he wants to martyr himself right mm. um and i i can't imagine john doe being happy going to prison <laughs> you know i get he, he would have probably got his lawyer to like you know plead insanity get him off all that kind of stuff because yeah. they say he's independently wealthy so he could afford to do you know get the the best lawyer best best defense attorney so yeah if if that was the way it went but it isn't the way it went and he won he won. He wins. Um, and Somerset lives to fight another day. So, hmm. yeah, it is. It's a very good film. Um, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Um, only that there are so many diff- um, interesting ways of sort of understanding this film. You can understand it. We've talked about it from a genre perspective. You can talk about it um, as a from as an as a piece of auteur cinema, as a David yes. Fincher film. You can Absolutely. talk about it in terms of its star power um, mm. in relation to, um, well, both in terms of you know the you know the stars that were there and the influence Pitt had on the overall production. Mm-hmm. The omission of kevin spacey from any of the film's <gasps> advertising yes um he doesn't yeah. appear in anything you don't know it's him until he shows up and his mm-hmm. name actually is the first one that appears in the credits kevin yeah spacey and the credits go backwards in reverse yeah 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 really interesting um, and there are i said at the start that there is it's a film with a lot of s's and i'm referencing <laughs> here richard dyer's book um his book about the film has uh which i'm recommending i suppose the bfi should yes. uh, uh, this has not been commissioned by the bfi but whatever <laughs> um that he has seven chapters of sin story structure mm. seriality sound sight and salvation Ah, and all of those elements you can talk about in this um film at work um and i love um what was uh, I love uh, the way Dyer rounds off his study that everything about Seven is so concerned with sin that mm. it is a gripping thriller, but it is also a symphony of sin. <laughs> um, he likens it also to um, uh, he likens it to King Lear um, mm. and a similarly like, seriously, completely bleak, um, nihilistic yeah. ending. Mm. Um, and what I love is that here we are nearly 30 years later and we can still talk about this film as being gripping, yes, devastating after repeat viewings. Um, mm. And I think it does this, one of the smartest things that cinema can do of truly involving mm. the audience. It mm-hmm. isn't just presenting and expressing, it's involving. Mm-hmm absolutely it is it is challenging you um we i think that's something like there's some there's some games out there at the moment like uh, video games that um their whole purpose is to challenge you on your on how empathetic you can be and so uh are you a gamer I'm not video games for me just tend to be a cause of frustration because I'm no good at them (laughs) so it's like this is no fun I'm just annoyed (laughs) sure yeah that's fair well the last of us part two so last of us part one has been made into a show last of us part two which is an amazing show (laughs) which is oh my god don't get me started I fucking love that show um I was very very impressed uh yeah the 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 second one is definitely a challenge and how empathetic are you as a person it puts you because obviously 
games are have to be involving you you are literally the main character you are pushing that character forward and it is putting you in a very difficult position of like challenging where are you empathetic and part two got a lot of flack for a twist it does very early on to the game um and then people got pissed off about it and i'm like you have failed the challenge the whole like you've not given yourself over to like even understand whether you can be empathetic in this situation hear another person's point of view and understand how you would action accordingly you've just gone no i don't like it don't like the story i'm out um and i'm like no <laughs> it's not bad storytelling it's you have failed and i think in in this in this film it is challenging you on like where are your empathies you know there's a reason why it only gives you so much backstory for one character and then or one victim and then so much backstory for another one it's asking you like where where are you agreeing with John Doe and where are you disagreeing where are you agreeing with Mills or Somerset or Tracy even and where are you not like where are your morals what is important to you as a person and I think like interesting because we've we've disagreed we've had different interpretations of different moments because we have our own experiences that make our own morals and our own points of view individualistic so we've gone into this film which is 30 years later with different points of points of opinion and that is a really fun good piece of art where we have conflicting interesting and valid points of view did anyone else hear the mic drop yeah (laughs) so vincent i am going to bring us to a close just because i you know as i as i were talking like am i going to make this a two-part episode i don't even know i'll see how long it is once i start editing it but Vincent, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast episode of Seven. I've so thoroughly enjoyed just going so deep into this film. It, like we're just saying, it's so rich. Mm-hmm. But we are here to judge film and TV and wider media on how well they represent fat and larger bodies. Mm-hmm. So out of a potential five Vincents, what would you score Seven for fat representation? I would probably have to score it a zero. Its fat representation is pretty bad. Yes. As a movie overall, I would give it five stars. But if we're using me as a (laughs) way of assessing positive body fat body representation, it doesn't do that at all. So no, it presents the fat body as grotesque and um, and something to be dismissed and mocked so yeah it, it gets a zero in that regard yeah uh i completely echo your opinion it is a zero hannah's from me it's a five-star film i will implore anyone to watch it anytime but yeah from a fat representation point of view solely it really does miss the mark unfortunately but what i would say and what i have said with quite a lot of the older films we do here is not not that it excuses it in any way it's just an explanation but body representation wasn't at the forefront of people's minds in the 90s you know and um, this is this is quite a new thing you know only in the past maybe decade have we been talking more about body positivity body influence body representation as well as other obviously marginalized representations as well so in 95 i can imagine it wasn't at the forefront of the casting director or david fincher or anyone's mind that we should be more um graceful with other body types than just your 
slender leading man of Brad Pitt's <laughs> standard. Mm. Um, and I do think it's very interesting that Brad Pitt is the one, or Mills is the one who continuously is the one deriding other body types. Um, again, it's just like part of his personality at this point. Uh, so yeah, so it's a zero Hannah's, it's a zero Vincent's. It is what it is, but it's still a five-star film. <laughs> Which we, yeah, but it's a great movie. We both really like it and everyone should see it. Everyone well, should I say it. everyone. If you're squeamish, maybe not. You know, it's interesting because as we were talking and, um, you know, you were really getting me into this idea of like doing like a Fincher marathon and I've got friends that we do like film nights with and they're not the most, um, I don't know, uh, th- thriller, horror-y people, but I'm thinking they could get through seven. I think they could. So well, I'm gonna... you could, yeah, well, you could really test them in terms of the, you know, the, the uh, abuse to the body type things and take them yeah. through, give them seven fight club mm-hmm. and the girl with the dragon tattoo oh okay yeah yeah or if you want something a bit you know easier mm-hmm. you can do a triple bill of the curious case of benjamin button the social network and mank they're like my three worst finchers the social <laughs> network is one of the best films of the 21st century how dare you I am such a minority on that front. I really don't get it. I just think it's fine. I'm not saying it's the worst type of thing I've ever seen, but it just didn't appeal to me. I also have a visceral hatred of Justin Timberlake, so that doesn't help. Well, it wouldn't, no. <laughs> it doesn't help at all. Anyway, right. Uh, Vincent, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Please, can you let the lovely listeners know where they can find more of your work? Certainly. Well, you can find my sins, I mean my work, on on the interwebs. Uh, You can find me at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. That is my handle on Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd. Um, Via from Twitter, I post links to my various reviews on sites like The Geek Show and The Critical Movie Critics and Bloody Good Screen. You can also find me on the monthly podcast, invasion of the potty people where <laughs> yeah where myself and my fellow hosts um russell and james talk about uh, genre film every month uh we do recommendations uh including um ju- we did in the most recent episode i recommended a podcast called fats on film and got you a couple of new subscribers oh You're welcome. my gosh oh thank you so much Vincent. i had no idea i've been recommended in that way thank you oh that makes me so yeah. happy so I you will... can find that uh, podcast invasion of the potty people on the um feed from the not just for kids movie club um, yes. And if you yes, and if you visit my blog, Vincent's Views, um, I have links there to my various podcast appearances in such places <laughs> as Not Just for Kids, um, Civico, The Road to Avatar, uh, Would You Die, and uh, Drunken Horror podcast. Oh, amazing! Well, I will have all the links to your socials below in the show notes, so people can quickly access what they need to do. Um, and people, the lovely listeners can find the podcast at Fats on Film on Twitter and Instagram and myself at Queen B Says on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. Thank you so much for listening and stay fat. <laughs>